looking at you, kid. I'm Charles Foster King! Hey, Stella! Suck on this. going on everybody this is wrong real episode 537 it's a podcast for hardcore cinephiles where we tackle everything from jean-luc godard to jean-luc picard and today we're going to be tackling the world of i claudius an incredible book an incredible show and for this discussion i've got the great victor Nautius maximus drusus caesar rodriguez as well as bill biggest dickus germanicus nero scurry <laughs> and uh for whatever reason both of you guys have caesar in your various podcasting and YouTube enterprises, so we figured why not bring the two Caesars together for a conversation of the family of Caesars, these five emperors that are tackled across the course of basically 100 years in this remarkable story. But guys, welcome back to Wrong Real. Pleasure to be here. Thank you very much for having us. Let's just start with, how come both of y'all have Caesar in your your names? <laughs> you can all both clearly have some interest in this strange bloodline with lots of peaks and valleys when it comes to sanity and conquerors and madmen and historians and so on and so forth. Go, go first, Victor, take it. Uh, well, yeah, as for me, um, I just thought, uh, you know, I had a, a midlife reinvention slash crisis when I moved up to the Pacific Northwest from Los Angeles uh, I was a, a you know an entertainment business executive for um, for quite a while in LA. So adjusting to being away from my contacts, away from my friends, away from Hollywood, um, you know, sort of made me feel like a big deal, um, like a like a no big deal in a new place, like a small fish in a in a big pond. So I thought dime store Caesar was. <laughs> a good way to describe kind of how I felt inside. So that's that's the short version. Beautiful. What about you, Mr. Scurry? Well, uh, I read a comic book. It was a Doctor Doom 2099 series uh, from Marvel. <laughs> it was around 1994, and the the uh, it was written by Warren Ellis, and the chapter title was called American Caesar. And so I thought, oh my god, that sounds fucking nuts. That sounds incredible. And so I probably read it. I used to have a subscription to that. Yeah, that was a bomb ass series. It started out by John Francis Moore and Walt Barnells took it over. And that was really his first North American American like Marvel Comics work. Um, and I did some research on the primordial internet, and it turned I got uh, Bill Manchester's well regarded uh, biography on um, Douglas MacArthur. Which is the size of a freaking, you know, Beijing phone book. Yeah, American Caesar, it's incredible. I read it back in 2006. Yeah. I mean, it's a whopper, but it basically covers like the late 1800s up through the 1960s and every single war that America was involved in, and in turn, every single war that Douglas MacArthur was involved in. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I just, the, the, the name American Caesar just rolled off the tongue. And it was in this incredible book by William Manchester, who's one of the 20th century's premier biographers. Yeah, he wrote like The Last Lion, Volume 1 and 2, about yeah. Churchill as well. And yeah, he's yep. the shit. Oh, and Death, Death of a President about Kennedy. He actually got access to uh, like the kind of access Schlesinger got. Yeah, he goes all over the place. The thing, the funny thing is the postscript to this is that I actually met Warren Ellis once or twice. 
And I told him, I said, hey, I, I really loved American Caesar. I said, that was a, it was a comic book name of uh, Doom 2099. He says, well, I got the name from Iggy Pop. <laughs> Oh, which was the one album. of those albums. Yeah, the album. Like, I don't fucking know from Iggy Pop. I'm like, can we just make this about uh, William Manchester instead? So that was the ironic part. But then I start. I mean, the Caesar thing came from also a Latinophilia that I developed in high school uh, going way back. So it wasn't completely out of nowhere. But I get, b- back in the 90s, I studied Latin for a couple of years in school. And I, I just really got, I mean, the language and the culture at the same time at a very impressionable age filled me with something I didn't know before. I always wanted to see those umbrella pines from Rome, and I wanted to see the Palatine Hill and the Capitoline Hill. So um, it was sort of a fusion of a couple of different things at once. And just American Caesar sounded like it was really good as a, a you know, a DBA or an LLC. And it worked out from there. Beautiful. Well, Mr. Rodriguez, what have you been up to as of late with your podcasting, your fiction writing, all your various endeavors? Uh, well, uh, I would say the well, the the thing that happened this week is I uh, submitted my my dark fantasy sword and sorcery heist to um, one of my favorite magazines, a three lobed burning eye. Uh, so if I get accepted into that magazine, I'm going to be over the moon. Um, but um, on uh, on a more practical level, because that actually that acceptance hasn't happened yet, I'm just hopeful. Um, my my client, you know, I I manage a, um, a Los Angeles-based composer, uh, scored the movie uh, Mandeo Returns, which is on um, uh, Amazon Prime right nice. now for free. So yeah, she did a great job. It's um, it's a fantastic movie. If you like horror comedies, um, this is uh, this is pretty good, and it's it just dialed into my sense of humor. <laughs> and how is your tabletop gaming going? Uh, it's okay. You know, um, I, you know, one thing that happened when I moved up to uh, Pacific Northwest um, was that I got into a regular digital game um, with uh, my Los Angeles friends. And um, right now we're we're playing we're sort of at the tail end of a campaign of masks, uh, run by Connor Mooney, and um, he's doing a great job. It's basically uh, here. Uh, it, it's kind of like New Mutants territory. Like it's, we're we're high school kids uh, with superpowers, and um, you know he's throwing supervillains at us. So it's it's a pretty good game. Yeah, if I could take a year off from podcasting and YouTube and not actually lose any time and just devote myself to running a full-fledged Dungeons and Dragons campaign, that would be just like the height of ecstasy for me, but it's so all-consuming to write the modules, run a campaign and like the scheduling, the coordinating of all the all the various schedules. It's not even like a part-time job, it's a full-time job if you want if you want to run a campaign unless you're just going to use like basically campaign settings written by other people, which is kind of takes away 50% of the fun of being a DM, but I envy you the fact that you're still involved. I guess I get a little taste of that world just by playing games like Cyberpunk 2077 and things like that, but it's just not the same thing mm-hmm. because tabletop RPGs, your imagination can go anywhere whereas with a game you're limited to the confines of the game. Yeah, uh, yeah, I'm writing a new book right now, and um, yeah, unfortunately, I, I had to uh, come clean with the with the guys I game with and go, look, you know, I can I can run a game or I can write this book. Yeah. I can't do both. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> well, Scurry, what's been going on with your various YouTube endeavors? I've been enjoying some of your videos as of late. Yeah, I just got done dropping the I'd say first five of eventually ten a second season of, of American Caesar Salad, the video essay series. Uh, and I'm I'm glad I the first ten that I dropped I guess it was between 2018 and 2019 I guess I have a bunch more Twitter followers and stuff now or at least you know film Twitter is just looking at my 
idiot comments a little bit more favorably. So I've, I've and the, the reaction's great. And, and I know your subscriber think, count is uh, you crossed the 1,000 mark, which is the toughest first threshold to cross because, I mean, getting that first 1,000 compared to the next 1,000, I mean, it's just night and day. Yeah, it only took me from 2008 till today to get the first 1,000. But then again, <laughs> I, I, so I, wasn't going, I wasn't going very hard at it. You know, it was very passive for me. Where I was doing it, for, I was making videos for my own, you know, for my own fuck around. That's fine. And to be honest, I make these things because I want to, you know, I want to like do research on David Warner for eight weeks, not because I need anybody to watch it. No, it's like Claudius doing his histories of Carthage. Like no one's going to actually read these <laughs> things, but they're important to him. It is. But the nice thing is, is that let's say the 80 or so views that I get on it, I, I kind of feel like those are the right 80 people. I kind of almost like interact with those 80 people on a weekly basis. So in a way, those are also experts. I'm not calling myself an expert. But you have somebody that's got like 200,000 views. I can't remember what it is, but there's something that just went crazy. Yeah, I had some. There's some. I've made some weird comedy stuff. I did a video after a year here in the Netherlands. I um, I did a video about, hey, it's an idiot New Yorkers. Um, you know, I shoot my mouth off about notice. I noticed the differences and certain cultural, you know, uh, peculiarities about the Netherlands, and that actually took off because Dutch people found it. And I spent, I would say, about a month and a half dealing with being told I'm an idiot. And I, what they in in, in Netherlands in, in Dutch they call gekolonizeerd, which is the uh, <laughs> person coming from without trying to step on Dutch culture. And so, yeah, I got called an idiot. I was told to go home and I'm like, okay, this is what you, and, but it was the slow road to a thousand subscribers. So uh, that's how you make all these people uh, happy in the end. Beautiful. Excellent. So anything that we have uh, to look forward to? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm hopefully in the next couple of months, I'm going to start working on the next set of them. I'm going to talk about um, the Richard Pryor movie, Jojo Dancer, Your Life is Calling. And a weird artifact from 1986, but I kind of got it stuck in my brain after I watched it about a year and a half ago. And I think there's a lot to say about it just because Pryor is so interesting. Yeah, I've been dying to do a Richard Pryor episode on Wrong Real for forever because I feel like between like Live on the Sunset Strip or movies like Blue Collar or The Mac, yeah. there's some really cool stuff. I mean, as a little kid, I was watching stupid shit like The Toy which I thought was amazing at the time, but he has some other movies that are far superior, but uh, I don't want to get derailed talking about Richard Pryor, but for me, he is the greatest stand-up comedian of all time, and uh, you know, people talk about the Mount Rushmore of comedians. Well, I mean, he, for me, he is the Augustus Caesar of comedy, and it's a way of kind of slipping into this giant, sprawling topic. Victor, I'm going to let you just introduce people... If they've never heard of Robert Graves, if they've never heard of the film adaptation or the attempted adaptation by Charles Lawton and Joseph von Sternberg, or if they've never heard of the BBC show from the 1970s, ease people into the baby end of the pool. What is I, Claudius? Wait, Victor, well, do not confuse Robert Graves with Peter Graves, because that'd be a very big error. <laughs> is Peter Graves a porn star? Or who's Peter Graves? No, Peter Graves is the captain, from, the pilot from Airplane. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah peter graves does kind of sound like a maybe a goth porn star yeah. um <laughs> but uh but yeah i claudius so uh the uh, the famous uh tv series that we're going to be diving in depth into um is uh, is based on two books that were uh, written by graves and um those books are called i claudius and claudius the god which i think um I got my copy right here, well thumbed, brown with age, but I reread it for this episode. Nice, it's very good. Uh, you know, the, those books are um, notorious for being very historically accurate. Um, they're also quite dry. 
uh, to read. Um, but uh, that's kind of the price you pay. You know, you get uh, you get a historical accuracy and a lot of Roman names that um, really don't make sense for the first half of the first book, at least to me. And then all of a sudden you can speak Roman like, you know, it's it's like uh, taking a language course. Um, but uh, the TV show, um, definitely the most famous adaptation of I, Claudius so far. And um, yeah, uh, there was a movie before it. And off the top of my head, I don't know the director, but I know it was to star Charles Lawton. Well, they never finished it. The whole thing fell apart. And Joseph von Sternberg, one of my all-time favorite filmmakers who made Marlena Dietrich famous in the early 30s, he was tapped by producer Alexander Korda to direct and the scenes that exist are extraordinary. And there's a great documentary, I think it's called like The Epic That Never Was, where you see the rushes from the, the ongoing production. And it looks like they were just crushing it. But Charles Lawton was a very difficult actor, and, and, but a very brilliant actor. And he never felt like he could get his arms around the character. And then Merle Oberon, she ended up getting in this horrible accident that was going to derail the production for a while. And they finally just said, screw it, this production's cursed. And it created this myth that I, Claudius, was doomed never to be adapted and that there's this curse over the text for that, uh, that endured up into the 70s and they were still kind of joking about it as they were shooting the show. But yeah, it kind of, one of the reasons it took me so long to watch this show is that it kind of wounded me that one of my all-time favorite filmmakers didn't get to finish his opus. But I have to say, of all the things that I've seen or been exposed to since the start of Wrong Reel in 2014... Seeing I Claudius for the first time is one of my all, is one of my favorite new discoveries. So much so, I watched all twelve episodes twice. Wow, that's awesome. Uh, yeah, yeah. My first encounter with um, with I Claudius was I think on Bravo um, TV, and I liked it so much I bought the DVDs as soon as they came out. And um, these were really primitive D DVDs with the. Um, no text on them, so it's kind of hard to tell what side uh, you're you're currently watching <laughs> unless you just watch them all in a row. Um, so uh, it was good. I think I bought the the DVDs in 2000. Probably saw the series for the first time slightly before then, so the like the late 90s. Um, but yeah, it blew my mind, and uh, I just rewatched it so uh, I'd be fresh for for the show, and um, it didn't lose anything. What are you grinning at, monster? You are a monster, aren't you? Whatever you say, great-grandmother. Did you know your nephew was a monster, Claudius? Oh, was he old enough to have acquired that title? Oh, he started very young, didn't you, monster? I searched his room one day and I found a little green talisman that told me a very remarkable story. Or rather confirmed one I'd heard from another quarter. A green talisman, like my brother wore? The one your brother wore. Do you think it's safe that Uncle Claudius should be told my secret? Or are you going to poison him? Oh, he's quite safe. And remember this, monster. Your Uncle Claudius here is a phenomenon. He's so old-fashioned that because he's sworn to protect his brother's children, he will never harm you. And remember this, too. Thrasyllus has prophesied that he will avenge your death so you cannot harm him. I didn't think much of that prophecy. Never mind what you thought about it, just remember it. Now you may kiss me and go. I want to talk to Claudius in private. Yeah, it's interesting, what I've learned or realized over the course of doing this podcast 
for a while I subscribed to this idea that any TV prior to kind of the gold, quote unquote golden age of TV in the 21st century wasn't really worth rediscovering. And nothing could be further from the truth, whether you're talking about the writing of like Rod Serling in the 50s and early 60s or Star Trek or whatever the case might be, there's great shit to be found. You just have to do a little bit more digging. And I think I, Claudius, while the show has got some budgetary restraints that you could almost kind of justify as an aesthetic choice, but when it comes to just writing and humor and acting, it's one of the most gloriously entertaining things I've ever seen. And I think it's largely due to the involvement of writer Jack Pullman, who died not long after they created the show. But he brings in the humor. I did want to push back just a little bit, though, on the idea of characterizing Robert Graves' book as dry. I love I, Claudius, but it's not as funny as Jack Pullman's writing. But it's definitely grander and bigger and all the depraved, horrible, just atrocious chapters that are captured so vividly in the show, they're all there, but the tone is slightly different. But what it has that the show lacks are like giant gladiatorial battles when elephants and rhinos are fighting or or incredible battles with like Germanicus fighting the Germans. And so there are things that you find in the book that just would be economically not very feasible to try to adapt into the show. But I think there is a perfect harmony between the two because the best moments from the show, the events are there in the book, but then Jack Pullman just introduces all this wit and humor that Robert Graves is just, his style of storytelling is just a little bit different. But Mr. Yeah. Scurry, when did you first get exposed to a Claudius? Well, I grew up with it in the background uh, as a cloud, knowing that it was out there as, as a sort of sensation. I mean, I don't think Victor's that much older than us. I'm only I'm 45, so I was I was one when this came out. Um, but I mean, I tried to watch this on VHS around 2003, and the VHS transfer is terrible. And, and also the TV I was trying to watch on was also, the sound was awful. So it was boxy and tinny, and it was, it was uh, not very conducive to watching. So I think we got through one episode and put it away. But it wasn't until recently that I went, you know, I always had it in my head as something that was out there that was one of these uh, TV miniseries. Because I think another little bit of um, uh, uh, context for this is that the 70s especially is when there were a lot of, cla- the, the miniseries was peak sort of prime TV before there was such a concept. And the, the year after this, in 1977, you had Alex Haley's Roots came out, and that was a Latin cultural artifact. Uh, I mean, it was it was must-see TV. It was water cooler talk. It was about something important. It was also an incredible miniseries. And I will preface it by saying I haven't seen Roots, but, I mean, it still has this hold on America today. Because you're racist. Um, I must be. I'm ready for ready to be canceled. But uh, and and so people were ready for. I mean, later on comes the Thornbirds, and there was there was a Winds of War and North and South and Shogun and things like that. Shogun, yeah, Shogun was another one. James Clavell's Shogun was a huge one, and that had nudity as well, and that was shown on TV just the same. Um, th- there was something about the '70s and the miniseries form that was the clock stop. Every house in America was turned to this thing at the same time. So, I mean, what this had going for it was that it was a BBC project and it was being shown on Masterpiece Theater, you know, introduced by Alistair Cook, like everything else. Um, but, you know, to what, what you're saying about how you can't quite represent the things that are inside, P- uh, I was gonna say Peter Graves' book. That's a, it's a different <laughs> book altogether. Uh, it has, it very much has the appearance of a filmed play. 
And and as someone who's just watched like Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which was exactly that, and they just shot that with Chadwick Boseman and Viola Davis. Um, there's there's an art to doing the filmed play. I mean, Glengarry Glen Ross was a filmed play. There's a whole lot of them along the way. David Mamet specialized. Yeah, stagey, but in a good way. Stagey in a good way, right? What you do is you play to the advantage of what the film play gives you, um, and so the miniseries has this weird fusion of the television studio. You can tell that if the cameras are those big, massive video cameras on the floating uh, platforms. And so they're almost like rooted in place. It's almost like being shot multi-cam. It's on video, no less. So it has a very different look. They didn't shoot on film. They kept it on video. So it looks like you're watching something of a closed circuit TV. And the sets were just, you know, flats that were pushed together or pushed out, depending on what scene you needed to build. Yeah, whether You've got a cast of dozens. Like, you know, in the 50s, you would do a cast <laughs> of thousands. But somehow they were able to shoot this fucking thing with like 15 extras. And they're doing like they're showing like the Senate floor and they're showing like, you know, uh, fucking the, the Coliseum. But you're seeing just a teeny tiny little piece. But somehow Herbert Wise... He was an incredibly economical director, and he knew precisely what he needed and what he did not, and he creates the illusion of a hundred years of Roman history in spite of the fact that it's like cardboard sets and garish makeup that looks atrocious, but I completely, totally fall under its spell every time I watch an episode. You know, I, but based on what you're saying, you know, if you are, some of our contemporaries might have difficulty getting into this because you mentioned... Twilight Zone. Twilight Zone was shot on film, so it looks yeah. very different. When you remaster Twilight Zone, they're stunning. It has, there's one season on video that looks atrocious. The right, other four right, seasons right. look awe-inspiring. Mm. And that's the thing about like with film, you can continually remaster. You can go 2K, 4K, 8K, so yep. on and so forth. Uh, the thing with this video is that the version we have now and the version we pretty much had since VHS is all there's going to be. You can't update video. It yeah, is stuck. It'll make it worse. The, yeah. You can make yeah. it worse, right? Yeah. There, there's no way to add more resolution to it. So you're stuck with the sort of tape technology, whatever generation it was in 76 in BBC Studios, that's the best it's going to be. So this kind of looks like Days of Our Lives. The difference is, is that it's Sharn Phillips and Brian Blessed blustering on the screen with some of the greatest dialogue that's ever been written before. I mean, you could make a case for this being the best cast ever assembled for any show or movie. I mean, the cast, every episode, like, oh my God, oh my God, the he. They're in this too? Holy shit! Like, what the fuck? It's like, oh my god, there's, uh, there's fucking uh, John Reese davis Oh my god, there's Patrick Stewart. It's like this one legend after another just keeps popping up, and I could not believe the, the power of the cast. But um, Mr. Rodriguez, I, I'm overwhelmed by just the enormity of this task. Help us, where should we start in discussing the show? Because it's going to be very easy for me to get overly excited by every little, like, oh, let's go here, let's go there. <laughs> Give, give us a roadmap. How, how should we start Same. cracking this fucker open? Same, yeah. Uh, well, I just wanted to say, um, uh, just uh, uh, sort of take going going on what Bill just said, um, y yeah, to, to your listeners, James, I mean, uh, I think that, especially after watching a, a series like Rome, which has super, super high production values, um, it's important to note that I, Claudius may seem underwhelming, but also just like Bill said, um, in every single episode of I, Claudius, there is a moment where somebody delivers a line 
better than you can possibly imagine. And it's definitely worth it just to see those performances. I mean, yeah. it's great. There's not a wasted line of dialogue. There's not a wasted scene. I mean, the, the book's kind of a whopper. And the book takes up like the first eight or nine episodes. Basically, the first book takes you up through the assassination of Caligula and uh, I Cla and Claudius being um, basically appointed emperor <laughs> by <laughs> these kind of uh, by the most unlikely people imaginable. But the fact that they were able to leapfrog across decades and make each episode seem so essential and the way they're able to kind of give us this laser focus on a few key moments, it's one of the best examples I can think of of how to tackle 100 years of history at a glance. Like if you want to do something like the Silmarillion, you don't try to do the entire Silmarillion. This is the way to do it. You find little moments and scenes within the overall giant sprawling saga and you really, with the laser focus, focus on that. And I just couldn't believe how well they pulled it off. I just, when it comes to economical storytelling, brilliant dialogue, I wouldn't cut a frame from any of these episodes. Every single one of them, I just, in spite of the it looking like Days of Our Lives, as <laughs> Bill pointed out, which, and I am not a fan of soap operas, it looks like nothing, but somehow it becomes the most glorious drama imaginable. And it does occasionally whip out interesting camera technique when uh, there's this great scene where Augustus Caesar is dressing down basically 500 men for fucking his daughter on repeat for the last couple <laughs> of years. And the camera <laughs> is whipping around behind the men and then pushing in on Brian blessed. And there actually is some interesting stuff. It reminds me a little bit of almost like Ingmar Bergman, where so much of it is shot in close-ups, and because they have no money for production value, they really just get right up in the in the face of these marvelous actors like Sean Phillips. And so you really get to appreciate all the the, the brilliant little moments of all their remarkable performances. Yeah. yeah. Victor, can I ask you, as you have more context in this than I do, I think the best place to start off would be, would be to lay some context for the time frame we're talking about, yeah. when this starts and when it sort of drops us off into the end, because that to me, was the most interesting thing about researching this was where the sp very specific part of the Roman Empire where this puts us. Yeah, it almost picks up where Victor and I left off with our episode yes, exactly. about Rome, where you're yep. transitioning from Republic to Empire. Yeah, um, well, I mean, just to really quickly go through, um, you know, Roman history in chunks, I mean, uh, there was sort of the pre-Caesar years, which were, you know, sort of, uh, you know, rule kind of slipped from a series of kings to uh, a Senate and a, a rule by the Senate and um, later the, uh, the Senate uh, or the, uh, the appointed uh, consuls by the people. Uh, and then there was a couple of noble families um, like the Julians or the Claudians, which uh, you know are covered in, in I Claudius, which um, made it into empire for a while. They were invited to uh, be emperors and um, sort of have a rule of succession. And um, I was reading yesterday, actually, that one of the probable chief causes for the decline of the Roman Empire afterwards was the lack of succession. Like, they were still emperors, but it was basically a bunch of generals that were really successful and then everything devolved into civil war because that's the way the ancient Romans dealt with um, differences in opinion. Uh, so this uh, period captured in I. Claudius, which is 
quite a lengthy period. It's uh, yeah, it's at least yeah, five. Twenty-seven BC to sixty-eight AD. So yeah, the Julio-Claudian dynasty. And I guess the only thing that's really missing from this, we see a, a taste of Nero. And it's a shame that Claudius dies before Nero gets to have his reign because that would have been really juicy material to put on the screen as well because he was arguably the most deranged of all of them. But yeah. sadly, we don't get to see Nero except for a, for a, a brief little taste in the final episode. Yeah, you just you just get to hear him saying, uh, oh, but, what a pretty thing a fire is. Yeah, exactly. But according to Claudius <laughs> in the first book, the way he characterizes it, that basically the empire really only worked while Livia was alive, and that it briefly kind of has a little comeback as Claudius is around, because Claudius is able to kind of keep him, um, he's just less depraved than the rest of them. But at the moment Livia dies and stops pulling the strings of Tiberius and Augustus, that you can make a case for her having been the most powerful woman who had ever lived up mm -hmm. to that point. And then once she died, then it was just Caligula and Nero and just madmen running everything into the ground. Well, I mean, after that, you, I mean, look, you did have Hadrian, you had uh, Marcus Aurelius, you had some really, really, I mean, Constantine, and and you had some, you had some pretty solid Roman emperors after that. The problem yeah, I mean, it is, it endures that, for centuries, and we were talking, yeah, it, it lasts what until yeah. like, like the four hundreds, or how long is the last AD? Yeah, something four hundreds or six hundreds when you had the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, there's so many different schisms and and yeah, Christianity coming into it with Constantine and whatnot. But I mean, there were some figures who had long stretches of peace and whatnot. Yeah, um, Wikipedia, it's, it, tra the traditional ending is roughly AD four seven six. I mean, this is when we talk about. That's why I thought it was interesting. I wanted Victor to talk about this. Is that this is what you think of? I think when you think of the the. Roman Empire. I mean, it went on for long, but the the personalities really came out of this period, which is why which is why uh, Graves thought it was so juicy. It was so worth kind of making a, a book first and then adopting it, adapting it into a movie and then a soap opera later on, because it is really it's a human story, and it was covered from eight ways to Sunday by guys like Suetonius and Tacitus. And, and these guys, the historians themselves, had their own access to grind, which is why they, they are generally not thought of as being incredibly reliable today because they were fabricators of their own. They were litigating the case against these guys in their, in their own day, you know, their own day. Yeah, even primary sources, you have to look at them, you know, with a little bit of a critical eye because they all, yeah. everybody's got an agenda. That's exactly what the case is. And so, I mean, you could, but that's the beauty of it is that Graves called this a historical novel and that's exactly what it is. I mean, if you go by this, if you watch I, Claudius, or you read it and you think that this is a historic retelling beat by beat, I think you're kind of missing the point. The point is this, this incredible story, partially fabricated, partially based on real sources. But I mean, you know, it's breathed, it, it gets life breathed into it by these incredible actors and this guy, Jack Pullman, who just did one of the all-time TV jobs of, 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 you know, of our, you know, all time of our lifetime, I guess I should say. Yeah, I know they, they were struggling with the overall approach and tone until they brought him in and he said, look, this is the mafia. It's the hugging and the embracing and everybody pretending to be friends and lovers. And meanwhile, behind the scenes, they're plotting and scheming each other's destruction. What's happened? Your uncle has brought me evidence. My son was poisoned by his wife. Uncle Villa. I always knew that woman was no good. She poisoned him with the help of Sejanus. 
Now they plot to assassinate me. People really are despicable. The point is, how to arrest him? He controls the guard. 4,000 of them. All loyal to him. Not to me. His loyal servants, not mine. Castor warned me. I wouldn't listen to him. Is there no one among them you can trust? No man of integrity? Not that I know of. Isn't that a terrible comment on our times, Uncle? On the other hand, if you can't find a man of integrity, I always say, look for a man with ambition. Find a dog who'll eat a dog. Do you know of such a person? Yes, I do. Sertorius Macro, Sir Janus second in command. He's very popular with the troops. He arrested Alice. Isn't he loyal to Sir Janus? Oh, yes, of course, but he can't move up while Sir Janus is still there, can he? And he is very ambitious. Do you know him personally? No, but I've slept with his wife several times. And his deception with the wife regarded these days as a sound introduction to the husband? He knows about that. Told you. He's ambitious. I shall make you my successor, Gaius Caligula. I have decided. You shall stay here with me. Rome deserves you. I will nurse you like a viper in her bosom. Is that a joke, Uncle? <laughs> Not yet, but it will be. Sir Janus must be put off his guard. He must suspect nothing. I know. I'll tell him I'm going to Rome. I'll ask him to meet me on the Senate steps, where he will hear something that will surprise him. What about his friends? He has a lot of friends. I will draw up a list during dinner. A long list. The city will be purged. As surely as if she had gorged herself on figs for a year. I will open Rome's bowels. The streets will run like a sewer. Yeah, it's it's really hard to think about human beings in the middle of all this. It's like me when I went to Egypt a couple of years ago, and I'm looking at all the bar reliefs on the side of temples, and it's these figures who were figured from you know they're figuratively rendered from the side uh, you know profile, and it's hard to think that you know Cheops and and Ozymandias and all these guys were real human beings and had real motivations and real family relationships with people, you know that they sat down on the toilet and they had sex and they did stupid things along the way. And I, what I, you know, this, the, what makes this so valuable is that it make it renders them all human again in such a delightfully recognizable way. And it feels like in some, again, it may not be true, but it's a real service to history. It's a real like homage and a service in that it it vivifies them. It re, it pours blood back into tissue that's been dead and desiccated for centuries. Also, for, for my own personal taste, I love well-crafted villains, and this is a rare story, like far more so than even Game of Thrones where pretty much every single character 
is villainous to a degree. I mean, there are a few exceptions like Germanicus and Claudius where a few people are, are idealists about the Republic. But I love mm-hmm. how we get so many different forms of villainy from like Lavilla to Livia, I mean, to, uh, to fucking uh, Tiberius to Caligula. I mean, it's like it's, we get so many, such, such variety <laughs> of villainy and corruption and sloth and greed or Sejanus. I mean, they're just, it's just one episode after another where we have just a society that in a lot of ways is rotten to the core. And we're just seeing little rashes and manifestations of just how corrupt and depraved and gluttonous and ambitious this society is. And I think that's the big thing is that like we, Victor and I got into this a bit on Rome. It's a completely different moral and ethical code. Like the way that people are judged it's a, it's, you have to almost have like a completely like different mental reset, and uh, the fact that like being an idealist or believing in the republic is the most like dangerous path that you could possibly choose. Yeah, I mean um, the the ancient Romans. I think one of the reasons uh, stories of ancient Rome are still so resonant with uh, viewers in the Western world is because it reminds us of our own society uh quite a bit but there are a lot of differences there and i think the in in rome and in i claudius you can see some of them like the way the gods are dealt with in everyday life even in in the uh the nobility uh but there were certain roman virtues that um you know the ancient romans embraced that are a lot like our own, like loyalty. Uh, you know, they they were you know great builders. Obviously, they have a lot of similarities to us, but a lot of differences too. So one of the ways you can kind of see all these differences is by really studying these TV shows. Like they, I think they really bring up that period thought in a brilliant way without without it being too alien. Um, you know, it's uh, it's cool the way they do it. I think my favorite bit, I mean, one of my favorite bits, I have many favorite bits, but when we're seeing the transition from Tiberius to Caligula and Tiberius realizes that his right-hand man, Sejanus, is very rapidly kind of pulling the empire away from him. And they're basically trying to figure out, like, well, how do we get rid of this guy when we we can't really count on anybody to be loyal to us? And Caligula very wisely says, all right, well, if you can't find somebody that's like pure and idealistic, Find somebody who's ambitious, like sick a dog on a dog. And that's when they tap John Reese Davies to take down Patrick Stewart. And it for me, it perfectly captures the way that you successfully oust somebody from power, how you success, successfully maneuver against them and how you play upon their vanity and their ego and their ambition and the way they're able to lure Patrick Stewart into the Senate by claiming they're going to read a letter announcing him as like you know protector of the realm or whatever the case might be, so he thinks he's about to have his big moment, and as soon as they start reading this letter, very quickly we start seeing on the senators like scurrying out. <laughs> they realize <laughs> that an absolute bloodletting is about to begin, and what and then it leads to just this wholesale slaughter, and then probably one of the grimmest, darkest, most nightmarish things I've ever seen on TV ever is when they're butchering Patrick Stewart's children and one guard says, well, I can't murder his daughter. She's, she's a virgin. I can't do it. I can't just kill them. They're under age. They're on the list. Now get on with it. The girl is a virgin. It's unprecedented to kill a virgin. It will bring bad luck to the city. 
Well, make sure she's not a virgin before you kill her. Now get on with it! <laughs> oh my god! That is yeah. just pure evil. It's a gut punch. Victor, Victor, I was really curious. I think the morality question is a great thing to start this episode with because, I mean, again, like talk about revivifying these people who've just been... Um, you know, caricatures throughout history or drawings or marble statues that are just, you know, alabaster or, or white. I mean, this does bring morals back into the picture. It does make you think that there were values and morals, but then there was also action and horrible atrocity. But it's like it mixes much the same way the Rome TV series does. And that's, you know, 35 years later in terms of how we how we regard these things in our pop entertainment. I was really curious about what you'd say about how it does um, pre present how people measure their ambition with their morals, but also with their feelings and emotions, because that that was one of the big surprises about the show was seeing about how you you really were going on a personal journey with all these main characters. You saw what they were feeling. And that's something that people don't think of when they do consider Rome. They don't think of that with the Caesars and all those things. It's, it's such a high uh, bolt-on conception that people just think of them as alien figures uh, somewhere in a text. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. Uh, and yeah, Pullman and Graves do a great job of humanizing these characters. But um, yeah, one one thing to just, uh, just drop a little historical context, um, Romans, like many people in the Western world, even today, were obsessed with conquest. And it's partially part of the Roman character, like part of what they valued from the very beginning of Roman civilization to it's also uh, nurture, or it's also nature in that um, the wars with Carthage before Julius Caesar and all that um, really trained the Roman people about what was good about conquering other lands. Like, you know, that, that was the proudest, the richest, the most prosperous moment the empire ever had. So they just kept repeating that over and over again and going to further and further lands until, you know, there weren't enough, there wasn't enough society to cover it all. Well, that's why Augustus is always encouraging everybody to marry early and often and breed as much as possible because they just don't have enough Romans to accomplish all the things that he wants to accomplish. Yeah. And the, the thing with the thing with actual the, the, and they addressed this in this Jack um, uh, Jack Pullman made sure that you saw this was that people kept referring to these battles and these wars whether they're in Gaul or they're in um, uh, what was uh, uh, England called at the time? What am I'm, I'm spacing? Uh, uh, we can just the, call it Britain just for the sake of simplicity. Yeah, yeah, Avalon or whatever it was, and then they, you know they're in they're in you know Germania. You know, the thing is, the wars were far away. The the wars were just a conception. Nobody actually had to deal with them until the generals came back and you saw how shattered they were. And I mean, you know, talk about an allegory about what Americans get to do is they just get to see these wars happening on the sand or somewhere else. Uh, you know, no matter what war it's been, it's always been on someone else's doorstep. You've never had to face the horrors of it. You know, you just sort of see the people come back and it's their job to reassimilate, not our job well, to understand until Rome where they get sacked by the Germans many, many, many centuries later. But that's an interesting thing where we see that in transition, at one point the nobles are, is considered like the height of your, I guess, your respectability to, to serve and to actually play a role. I mean, someone like Germanicus is a great example of that, where they're beloved by the troops and they're actually rolling up their sleeves and doing the real work, is as you get people like Caligula, who are having fantasy battles with Neptune and bringing back seashells, where they lose sight of what made this warrior race or this conqueror people 
what gave them the kind of their power and their dignity at the time. It's what defined them in so many ways. And as they lose sight of that, that's where we start to see a society in decline. But I guess as Tiberius, while he might be completely deranged and evil and perverted in so many ways, he does go out into the field on many occasions and win battle after battle after battle at August Augustus's behest. Yeah, yeah, I think uh, I think Tiberius um, is more about uh, just not being well suited to be emperor. Like he even he, just wants he to be thought, liked. <laughs> yeah, he just wants to be liked. Like he he never gets his. It's a classic case of uh, an Oedipal need to be, you know, like Freud would say, an Oedipal need to be loved by his mother, and she never does because she's she, all she knows how to do is manipulate the people around her. So. He keeps. He, she kind of keeps him on, and that even to the extent that he becomes emperor to to get her approval. And um, man, it's uh, it's great the way. I mean, he he's a despicable character, but that moment where he gets finally gets a little edge on Livia is just insane. It's an insane emotional payoff in uh, in in the TV series. Yeah, George so Baker and Sean Phillips, the way they interact. And they're together for a huge chunk of the overall narrative, but that's got to be one of the most memorable ingredients of the show. George Baker, he just makes me laugh so hard with his emotional outbursts and his neediness and how everybody despises him. And all he wants is just to like, all he really wants is just to live in a little villa with his wife, who he's forced to divorce by Livia because of Livia really wrote what she wants. It's not only to rule through Augustus, but also to rule through her son and eventually become a supreme goddess and watching her plotting and her machinations and her scheming across this show. I think there's a case to be made for her as the most fascinating villain in the history of television. Have Julia and his mother been told? Yes, of course. They're with him now. They returned at once. Julia is being hysterical, of course, and his mother never stops praying. Now let's hope that her prayers are heard. Yes, indeed. And mine, too. Tell me, what do you think of Julia? Nothing. Uh, Why? Nobody could accuse you of being devious. She thinks very well of you. What's that supposed to mean? Nothing. She likes you, that's all. Always has. Mother, I'm a happily married man. Julia doesn't interest me. She wouldn't interest me if you hung her naked from the ceiling above my bed. She might even do that if I asked her. Aren't you forgetting something? She's still married to Marcellus, and Marcellus is not dead yet. When I start to forget things, you may light my funeral pyre and put me on it, dead or alive. Well, don't ask me to divorce Vipsania, because I won't do it. Oh, what a lover we have here. Did you bring back a pocket full of poems from the Rhine? You may scoff all you like. Vipsania is the only thing in the world that means anything to me. I always thought a boy's mother meant something. Well, you do mean something. But so does she. So don't ask me to push her aside. I may ask more than that before I finish. Anyway, where does all this get us? There's not only Marcellus. There's Agrippa, too. And Augustus prefers both of them to me. No! No! He got... What's that? It sounds as though there is now only a Griffin. Well, I know we're zigging, zigging and zagging all over the place, but now's maybe as good a time as any just to talk about the character of Livia and the performance by Sean Phillips, yeah. which for me is one of the, the main highlights. And Bill, I know you've probably got some strong feelings about her due to her playing uh, a, a reverend mother in Dune, but real yes. quick, Victor, let's just talk about 
who is the character of Olivia? Try and for people who have not seen the show nor read the book, how would you describe her? Because for me, you can take all the villains in Game of Thrones and put them in an army, and Olivia would just eat them for breakfast. So, the the, the floor is yours. Yes, uh, she's an she's an archetype. I mean, um, yeah, the uh, she's the in in the practical sense, she is the wife of Augustus Caesar, who is the the Caesar that kicks off the series. Um, who, if you also listen to the Rome episode of Wrong Reel, uh, is the the nephew of Julius Caesar, formerly known as Octavian, um, and probably one of the most successful Roman emperors of all time. Um, so she's the grandmother of Claudius, the center point of view of I, Claudius. And um, she, so she is Probably besides Claudius, she's probably the character that touches the lives of most of the characters in the TV series. Um, but uh, yeah, <laughs> she is obviously intelligent, obviously scheming, um, a little uh, beyond her uh, physical prime. But she has retreated to sort of a, a, an intellectual, um, you know, palace state where she is just pulling the strings uh, around her. She's like a shadow shadow king, um, ruling ruling those around Augustus her. Augustus rules Rome. She rules Augustus. Yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, from that uh, documentary uh, you just sent us, uh, there, there's a lot of interesting commentary about how she was sort of reining it in a little bit, like, you know, trying to humanize uh, Livia a bit, uh, Sean Phillips' performance, and um, the uh, the producers were like, lean into it, man, yeah. you know. Enjoy just, it, you, yeah. It's a different time, like, you know, uh, like, camp it up, and I, I, I never really thought of it that way, but I, I think that the manipulations of Livia are something that ancient Rome would have gloried in because it is essentially showing her whatever power she could over her surroundings. And the Romans really admired that, uh, even if they maybe wouldn't have admired her doing it to everyone's face. Uh, so that's that's sort of the background of, of Livia. Yeah, and the way that Sean Phillips leans into it and just has so much pleasure, she's purring these lines. Like in the very first episode, Tiberius says this having a conversation with her and she has this line which is one of my favorites of the entire show she says when I start to forget things you may light my funeral pyre and put me on it dead or alive I was like whoa that girl's <laughs> hardcore <laughs> yeah. I, I was going to say the, the thing about Sharn Phillips is that she obviously was um, RSC much like the rest of these actors they took a train right from Stratford-on-Avon got off in the west of London and went to work at, and, and they had access to a workforce, the likes of which you may never see again. Not only is that an incredible feeder system for performers, but at, at the time, that generation of people who came out of that. Yeah, the Ian McKellens and the Judy Denches and all those. Michael, Michael Gambins, all those guys were incredible. I, mean, I just did a video essay on David Warner, and so I felt like I was mucking around in there for a while beating around and seeing who who was part of this and who knew each other and you know that you could have never understood like if you were in Stratford-on-Avon in like 67 or 68 that you you looked left and you looked right and opposite the paper chase where you know one of you won't be here you know next year at the end of the season or whatever those guys that you you launched all of entertainment they were like just thrown like star stuff from a big bang 
out into the uh, cosmos. And it's kind of amazing. So also, it's weird. She was married to O'Toole at that point. That was, I think she was six or seven or eight years that she was briefly married to Peter O'Toole, which was a, a star-studded relationship, as it were. But I'll tell you the one thing, based on everything Victor just said, um, she has this writing to work with, and she has this amazing weight on her shoulders. And shes I think she was only 41 or 42 when they, when they filmed this. Most of them were in their late 30s, early 40s. Um, one thing that she never does, and I'm always surprised to see these, these sort of presentational old school Shakespeare actors, because I don't think of them as method. They're not doing that Stanislavski thing of, 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 of digging inside the character, well, living inside craft, the craft, but, but you can, it, I, 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 that whole methods, a bunch of pretentious bollocks. As, as somebody, <laughs> I'm much more impressed by somebody who uses their body as an instrument. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, Daniel Day-Lewis will go learn how to make shoes or carpet cabinets for a year before he starts a movie. He, he learned how to stitch for Phantom Thread, you know, and yet you got the impression that what Sharon Phillips does and what, what uh, George Baker did was they got the text and they found their character in the text while they were doing it. They found out how to do it and they would pour themselves into it. Ralph Richardson, Gilgood, all these guys. That's yeah. exactly what they yeah, did. Lawrence Olivia, but, et cetera, and so Lawrence, forth. Masters of the form. But what's amazing about Sharon Phillips is that she doesn't leave anything behind. There's nothing. She, I don't think at any point in her performance. And again, it spans, I would say, 25 to 30 years of her life from her. I think it's four, like 45 years because she dies well into her 80s, finally. And she starts off in her. Yeah. OK. So yeah, in the first episode. Time. She's older, but she's still hot in the first episode. Yeah, well, she's not wearing she's not wearing that pancake that that gooey uh, caked on makeup that comes later. But the thing is, is that she never loses the arc. You know, an actor has to keep this continuity in their head of where they came from and where they're going, especially if they shoot at a sequence. That's up to them. And Sharon Phillips does an incredible thing about she's purring those lines, like you say, as history's greatest villain. So much so that David Chase picked her name to name Nancy Marchand, uh, you know, Livia Soprano after when it came time to him to make his own show in the late nineties. Um, but it's like, she keeps the humanity of it along the way. So as she says, what I've done, I've done for the good of the empire. She's I've done for Rome along the way. And then at the very, her last beat, I think it was episode, the end of episode five or most episode six is where she dies. Um, she, she has this incredible heart stopping tete a tete with Claudius where she goes through where the bodies are buried. And she is like, she's... <laughs> where she she's, invites him to that dinner that he's petrified to attend. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and it's like, she knows he's not a threat. He knows he's not a threat. He wants to know because he's historic. He's a historian, rather. And, you know, like, th there's so much going on that the story's balanced. This little fulcrum, this little point that you have to keep that balance perfect. And the two actors going at it, Derek Jacoby as Claudius, who I'm sure we'll talk more about in a minute, and Sharon Phillips as Livia, they have to be human beings. you got to believe that the pressures that have built up over time, this, this, this voyage, this arc that they're culminating between the two of them. And they're having this conversation. And it has exactly the weight that of, of of Livia telling Claudius, "This is everything I've done. This is all the people I've killed by fucking wiping poison on the dates on the tree myself by hand to kill your grandfather because it was for the good of Rome." And then she finally asks, "And I need you to make me a god." <laughs> Which reminds me of that great another great line. She says, "By the way, don't touch the figs. <laughs> don't touch the figs. <laughs> not dates, figs." 
but she 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 begs him. She says, "You have to promise me that you'll make me a god, because the only way I'm going to get out of this." She goes, "I know I've done horrible things, and I know I've done horrible things along the way. The only way I'm not going to hell is if you elevate me to a god." Which clearly means she's very well aware of her morality. She's very well aware of the scales of right and wrong, and she just flattened through murder, through parricide, through husband side, through infanticide to get what she thought she needed but she was going to pay the ultimate price at the end it's amazing how sharon phillips nails that arc yeah especially when for so much of claudia's life how she neglects him or overlooks him or never realizes probably the smartest of the bunch claudia i mean as a as an, as an historian he's the only person who's not a, a warrior or a plotter or a schemer so he just accumulates a lot of information and like in the book there are these great bits where when he's a child She'll say like, "Leave the room. I want to be in it." And she's like, she can't even stand this. Can't even stand the sight of this poor guy. But they do have this reconciliation where she's hanging out for her birthday dinner, and the only person there is fucking Caligula, who she keeps referring to as a monster. And finally, she asks Caligula to leave them alone. And she and Claudius finally had this moment, and you really get the sense that probably the most diabolical, most terrifying person of the entire story is finally recognizing that Claudius has a lot of knowledge and a lot of talent, a lot of traits that weren't immediately apparent because he has a stammer, he's got this nervous tick with his head, and he's got one leg that's shorter than the other. And I just love the fact that this person who's handicapped in so many ways ultimately ends up becoming one of the most successful emperors. I mean, he actually does succeed where... Julius Caesar failed by finally locking up Britain and taking it over entirely. And I, I feel like he somehow, he's even this most unlikely person possible, ends up exemplifying all of the classic traits that Rome used to look to as being the, the peak of virtue. Yeah, I think um, being the, you know, the brilliant manipulator that uh, Livia is, she is the one character that can see Claudius's high survival skills or what what becomes them eventually and uh she even says I think at the, at the end of the Queen of Heaven episode she's like go on playing the fool Claudius because you know that's going to get you to survive all what's coming <laughs> Yeah I mean the historians give him that advice his mother gives him that advice uh, do you like history Yes sir but who the devil are you Livy called you Claudius I'm I mean, it's Claudius. Oh, Cisnero Germanicus. Oh, that Claudius. They told me you were a half-wit. <laughs> well, my fam is ashamed of me because I... stammer and I'm lame and my head twitches. Yes, I, I've noticed that. But can't you stop it? No. The doctor said I'm... I... Oh, out of it. Why were you reading my history of the Civil Wars? Oh, I'm gathering material for the life of my father and, and father. Oh, I, I remember them. They both believed in the Republic. I know they did. That's why they died. I, I beg your pardon? I mean, that's why they were poisoned. Poisoned? Shh, not so loud. I won't mention any names, but I'll tell you this. You say you're writing the life of your father. They won't let you finish it. Who won't? Never mind. Look here, Claudius, I'll give you some good advice. Do you want to live a long and useful life? 
In that case, exaggerate your stutter and your limp. Let your wits wander and play the fool as much as you like. Do you understand me? Like, they're always amazed when they realize just how smart he is. And then they say, look, well, if you want to stay safe, pretend to be a halfwit. And he has that great bit later on when after he kind of finally becomes emperor, he reminds the Senate, I, I lasted far longer off half my wits than other people did with other wits intact. So let's get it. Let's break it open. Let's talk about Derek Jacobi because obviously he's the star of the show. He's the only person who's in every single episode. And I'm not aware of his much of his career prior to this, but obviously this com- this is one of those roles that comes along that will define your career forever. No matter what you do, no matter what you appear in, this is the role by which he will be remembered. So, Mr. Rodriguez, you watched that document or that little interview with him of just about his, his craft and his approach. Help us understand what Derek Jacoby accomplished with this character. Well, um, yeah. Uh- I, I think that uh, the, the two things that I remember from that uh, documentary about I, Claudius, uh, that Jacoby said when interviewed was one that he was um, mistaken, uh, much to his gladdened heart, that he actually did have a stammer in real life. So other people were like, well, we don't know if we have a role for you that can accommodate your disability. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> he's like, ah, thank you. You know, um, and, and the other thing, <laughs> the other thing was, um, just that, uh, I mean, he really went through an entire lifetime for that role, and um, and of course, you know, he's going to be judged on 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 that for the rest of his career, and uh, and plotted. and uh, I guess right before right before I Claudius uh, the TV series started, he was uh, scheduled to, or he was playing Hamlet on stage. And um, and his agent or somebody called him saying, uh, yeah, we got uh, we got a role, uh, the, the Claudius role for you. And he's like, oh, Claudius, I, well, I'm already playing Hamlet. You know, yeah, I, that's you the know, lead. Claudius, was... <laughs> Uncle Cla- yeah, Uncle Claudius is the one who ends up marrying his mother and trying to deprive him of his birthright. Yeah. yeah and they're like, no, 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 it's Claudius and I, Claudius. And he's like, oh, well, that's different. You know? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Even though he's not in the actual narrative in the earlier episodes because it's all prior to his birth. He's the narrator. He, we see him as an old man writing his memoirs. It's like these are memoirs that he knows are probably not going to have their impact or be, be properly read or discovered for about 1,900 years. But I just love the fact that he, through him, we get all these wonderful framing devices. And Bill, you kept sending us gifts of this. Probably one of the best framing devices is we get one episode that takes place during a very lengthy shit where he falls asleep on the privy. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, uh, I mean, th- th- let's say put it this way: it starts off. The very first scene is that um, it's old man uh, Derek Jacoby makeup. He's writing. He's beginning his autobiography. He's saying directly, "This is." I, don't, I assume this is from uh, Robert Graves's book. He says, "I'm talking to." You, in so many words, he says, "I'm talking to you, the reader, 1900 years later." And uh, that could be referring to the reader of the book, or it could be referring to the BBC audience. Either way, it's like a little bit of a, a call saying, this is relevant, and I'm speaking directly to you. Um, this this is something. And, you know, it's like not every actor could take those lines and make them work. But the thing is, I'm sure you guys will agree, Derek Jacoby's voice is like toasted honey. There's just something about it where it puts you into a trance. It's so calming. Even when he's doing his implosive stammer, 
which I think he designed his particular thing himself. He, they said initially he wrote, they wrote in the the dots and the beats and, and the stammer. And he said, Jack, I got it. I'm going to, what I'm going to do, you give me the script and I'll, I'll create it because I'm going to come up with a system. He designed his own sort of stammer. Um, even with that, he still has this incredible voice. It's authoritarian, it's authoritative and it's authoritarian when it needs to be. But I mean, Jacoby, whether he's caked up in makeup, ranting into a room by himself, he kind of looks like a lunatic at the beginning, like he's just hectoring his servants for more wine, a doddering old man looking for the perfect scroll that's somewhere inside of a jar, and he finds it. It contrasts with the young guy you see, who's being battle-tested. You know, his his steel is being tempered in this fire of the Julio-Claudian family along the way. And, I mean, I think that he he doesn't make a wrong move, obviously. Uh, you know, who's who's going to sit here and say that Derek Jacoby does something wrong? But I think that, the, the, in particular, the thing that he nails, the scene that really got me that was just fucking heartbreaking, was when his mother, Antonia, tells him, and this is sometime, I guess he's in his 30s at this point, so Jacoby's not really wearing a lot of makeup. He's more or less Jacoby as Jacoby with a little page boy wig sort of thing. And his, his mother has been around for a while, and she's watched her sons die, and she's been a witness to all this depravity, the murder. She knows exactly who's killed everybody, and she's just sick of it. She's an old lady herself. She tells Claudius, I'm going to kill myself now. I've got nothing left to give. It's time for me to live. Your your father's dead. Your sons, your, your, your brothers are dead. You're the only one to carry this on. And and Jacoby loses it. Jacoby just falls apart, and he sobs, and he's got racking sobs. And that's that's the kind of thing I wasn't expecting to see in this because again between the days of your lives, days of our lives camera work and the sort of presentational Shakespearean bellowing, he got extremely um, emotional and real where it's like oh right, this character is carrying around a fucking Mack trucks trailer worth of trauma. And it's like, you as an actor need to be aware that you live through all this stuff, that you watched your brothers get killed. That he watched his mother starve to death his sister. Sister. <laughs> I mean, yeah. when she's sitting there outside of the, a locked door, listening to her daughter scream, and she's like, oh, well, I'm starving her to death. That's her punishment. He's like, you, how can you listen to it? She's like, well, that's my that punishment. Is- I mean, that is fucking chilling to the core of your soul. I, and I appreciate that Jacoby the actor is also Jacoby the accountant who remembers a running tally of all these things along the way. And he just drops all this. It's like he knows he had a fucked up family life. There's emotional primation, privation from beginning to end. And when his mother says, I'm killing myself, she says it's so rationally, so devoid of feeling because she's bled of any emotion. He just feels like this is it. The I hoped I'd have some sort of love, some sort of sucker of warmth from somebody I care about. And it's like, even my mother is abandoning me and she's telling me she's going to abandon me. And it's like watching him collapse. You get a harder, harder man. You know, like his, his wood turned to charcoal after mm-hmm. that scene where he becomes so much more... Uh, uh, less charitable, so much more, you know, self, uh, you know, self-absorbed, a little bit more of a narcissist. And again, he's not the worst person in the story, but Jacoby tracks all the freaking diagrams and the math adds up at the end. That's how great, much the same way Sharon Phillips only had a sprint of six episodes to get to that point. Jacoby's got 13 or so episodes to remember this is a character I got to build, and you got to see exactly where he goes in every episode. He's a fucking master at it. Also, correct me if I'm wrong, Victor, you might know this, but they shot these basically. They're, the show was being aired as they were shooting it. And so I think they would do like a week of rehearsal and then a week of filming, and then they would post it and they'd be on to the next episode. So this is like an entire giant, sprawling saga 
that Jacoby has to kind of keep in his head because I know that by the time they get to the last episode, and he has that amazing scene where he spaces out and he gets revisited by Augustus and Livia and Tiberius and Caligula. Like at that point, they'd all become superstars, and the audience was like, "Yeah!" Like cheering the fact that they got to see. All the- so, but did they basically shoot one episode after another, or what? Do, what do you know about how they actually went about constructing this? That's my understanding as well. That they, they shot it in order, but um, one of the great advantages to working from pre-existing source material—you um, know, they had the novels—was that uh, geniuses like uh, Jacoby could read the books and pretty much know what was the context of everything. In you know, even if he hadn't seen the final scripts. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I think it's the, the writing, the script writing and the performance are both, uh, to be praised on, on how holistic, um, his performances throughout the, the series. Yeah. When he wants to be commanding and really be a Caesar, he nails it. I mean, when he, after Caligula has been murdered and this is, nobody's ever probably deserved to be killed more than Caligula, except for maybe Nero, but even then... He, because he knows that the, the mutineers were also planning on killing him and his family as well, the way he puts people to death, he can be bone-chilling. I mean, here's this unassuming guy that people have been laughing at for so long, but when he needs to show a spine of steel, he absolutely can. And I think, yeah, just the, the range of this performance is just awe-inspiring to, uh, to watch in action. But while we're talking about performances, we got to talk a little bit about Pat Stu as Janus, because obviously Pat Stu, he is a global icon and has been for many decades, but I think that his performance here is probably better than anything he ever showed us as Picard. And you see so many, <laughs> so many of the mannerisms and so many of the line readings that he uses later on in Star Trek. Clearly he's learning here, just like little things, like when somebody comes, like knocks on a door and they'll say, come. Like he does it, I don't know how many times he did that in Star Trek. Come. But he, he learned it here at I, Claudius, you know, back in the 1970s. So, uh, Scary, you and I have talked about Star Trek on many occasions. What do you think about Sir Patrick Stewart and the, the role of Sejanus in this? You know, t- to that end, I've heard the RSC actors. I say RSC, I mean Royal Shakespeare Company, in case that wasn't obvious for everybody. I've actually been to a couple of times. I saw Henry V and Twelfth Night perform there back in 1995 as a uh, senior in high school. Interesting. Yeah, so so I've heard it said, these guys have said for themselves, I forget if it was Stewart or it was McKellen or one of those guys, again, having dipped into this with um, uh, uh, David Warner for a while, they said that sci-fi works so well for them because what they're used to doing is looking at Shakespeare, Christopher Marlowe, old texts from Days of Yore, and, and reinvigorating it with the sound of their voice and finding inflection of things that clearly have only been on the page and the last practitioner was dead 700 years ago. And so what they say with sci-fi, you know, they have to invent the universe in their heads. And so that's why it makes sense that you get Patrick Stewart to play the captain of a starship because we've never actually had one of them. You know, and it's like, get get some guy who can build an entire world in his head. You don't need green screen because Patrick Stewart can do this by himself. Same thing with Patrick, uh, Ian McKellen. But he... You know, does a lot of things differently. You know, he in this, we're used to this old man conception of Patrick Stewart, who is a very game guy who loves, you know, taking pictures of himself, rolling doobies with his younger wife and taking all the fun projects and stuff like that. I got the impression because I've seen pictures of him when he was in Stratford on Avon doing Prospero. 
uh, in The Tempest, and he had a full head of hair, and he was just wearing a loincloth. It is a much different conception of the Yeah, Patrick he liked to Stewart. take his clothes off back then. My, my teacher that I was living with over in Britain said, because back in the day in the 60s and 70s, you basically had to pay Patrick Stewart to keep his clothes on because he was always trying to strip down <laughs> on stage. <laughs> Motherfucker was ripped. I mean, he 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 looked good. I mean, and he knew that that voice was his money banker. I mean, it was a handsome voice. So, I mean, he was born for a role like this. And, you know, again, I'm not surprised to have seen uh, Patrick Stewart and Sharon Phillips coming together in Dune again. Uh, you know, only, I would say, what was that, seven or eight years yeah, later? Yeah, years they, later, absolutely. Yeah, they get flown to Mexico City, and it's like, that's exactly what I would have done to do to do uh, Frank Herbert. I'd bring all these guys from Stratford. Yeah, I mean, bring in fucking Brian Blessed to play goddamn Baron Harkon. You could have taken the entire cast yeah. of I, Claudius and just said, fuck yeah. it, we're using all of them. I'm just going to put them in Dune. <laughs> yeah, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have known when to make a David Lynch along the way. But um, Patrick Stewart was ready for these things. I mean, again, it's a different conception of Captain Picard. When he gets to Captain Picard, you have a Los Angeles version, the guy who mellows out. But that Stratford on Avon version is hardcore. Uh, yeah. Much like again, John Reese Davies is not a very friendly, warm guy in this. He's no. a guy, he, he does a he does an incredible job of giving you that like completely Shakespearean conception, which is why. If anybody asked me, I would say that this is this is like Shakespeare through the lens of ancient Rome because the the performance and the practice is all Shakespeare, but the text is pure Roman, and the two of those things fused together cr create this amazing synthesis that you don't see a lot of in popular culture. The large toast really kill him. What are you saying? Small doses will never be detected. Get it for me. You're sure? Yes. Yes. Are you? If you are. And afterwards? I'll divorce my wife and we'll get married. And then I'll have you all to myself. No lovers for you then. You'll have to behave. And if I don't? You don't? And I'll lock you in a room without any clothes. And I'll visit you three or four times a day. Perhaps you'll be too tired. Perhaps you'll only manage once. Then I'll send my guard to stand in for me. Would you really? Yes. How many? Three or four. I might not let them. You'll be forced. Against my will? Yes. While you were there? Yes. I'd struggle and scream. But no use. You'd like that, wouldn't you? Yeah, I mean, those scenes between Patrick Stewart and Patricia Quinn, who I first saw, I guess, in Rocky Horror Picture Show. But, Rocky Horror. Yeah, yeah but she's like a needing a life, and she's a girl. But she plays La Villa in this, and La Villa is basically she's well she's got all sorts of designs of her own i mean there are a lot of power mad ambitious women in this that make cersei and game of thrones seem like a pussycat by comparison but she's having this unique form of 
foreplay with Patrick Stewart where he's describing how he's going to lock her in a room naked and he's going to like fuck her a couple times a day and that when he's too tired, he'll bring in his guards to fuck her as well and he's just going to sit back and watch and she's smiling and getting aroused. And it's like, these people are fucked up. Like, <laughs> these people are, are sick. But Victor, what, what do you think of this character of Sejanus? Because I feel like he... In a lot of ways, he's playing the same game as the rest of them. He's just, he's just a, a little less good at it in the end compared to Caligula, Tiberius, and Claudius. Yeah, he's pretty good. I mean, he's a man of great ambition. Um, but uh, yeah, there's there's like an archetypal character in storytelling where it's it's just a guy who is given a little bit of power and totally abuses it. Um, and <laughs> he is that guy. I mean, um, his his ambitions soon run to the height of Roman society, uh, but because of the um, the valuable favors that he provides to the imperial family, uh, he's tolerated. And um, and even they even understand what he's doing. And they're, they're so, they feel that they're so far above it that um, they're, they don't fear Sejanus. Um, and, uh, and Tiberius feels like he's doing him a favor, too, by keeping the administration far away. He wants to hang out in Ostia, which is, by the way, that's still there. Those ruins are by the airport. They're by Fumicino Airport. That was his summer residence. He just said he wanted to fuck off and let Sejanus take care of everything. He and Cal Caligula went to host their orgies and let children run around naked like nymph, garden nymphs and just be complete, total... The way they swap porn, like 300-year-old drawings, I mean, they are cut from the same cloth. <laughs> But I mean, one of the scenes that made me laugh harder than any other scene is when Caligula's trying to explain his plan to use John Reese davies to take down Patrick Stewart. Tiberius says, well, do you know him personally? He says, well, I slept with his wife a couple of times. I mean, everybody, <laughs> <laughs> the complete moral vacuum at the core of all these characters. Oh, my God. I mean, then, of course, Tiberius looks at Caligula and is like, Rome deserves you. I shall nurse you like a viper in her bosom. I mean, like. Can we all start talking to each other this way? Like, I want to nurse my friends like a viper in my in my bosom, and so on and so forth. I just, it's just so goddamn delightful to listen to. I know. Speaking of uh, serpents, I mean that that line between um, when Tiberius and his brother are are working out in the gym. Oh yeah. And they start talking about darkness, and and he's and he says, "Well, what do you think about Olivia, our mother?" And, he, and the guy says, "They say that once a serpent bit her and died." <laughs> <laughs> pretty oh much says god it. it's just fucking yeah, delightful john reese davis and and uh and patrick stewart i i never really known them to play villains um except in i claudius uh and they do you get it so to well. see friggin jean-luc picard and gimli you know going to the complete opposite direction and this is john reese davis i guess a couple of years before appearing in things like uh, raiders of the lost ark he's a little little leaner but man, I don't know if any of these actors have ever been better. It just shows you what – there are times where I can be dismissive of actors in comparison to a great writer or a great filmmaker or a great director of photography. But it just shows how if you give a, a talented actor really good material, they can really show up what they've got. They really are at the mercy of marvelous subject matter like this. But when you, when you marry – an actor to this material and you don't have special effects and you don't have great production value and all you really have is the performance. This is their, like the really their opportunity to show us what they've got. And I feel like if you want to make a case for the importance of great screen acting in film and television, you really can't find a better example than this, than this show. 
Yeah, um, actually, it's you, you mentioned the, a couple of other franchises, like Game of Thrones, for instance. You know, the guy who played Herod Agrippa, did you recognize him, James? I did not, but I love the character as depicted. And that's a, largely a creation for the show because he's barely in the book. But uh, which character did he play in Game of Thrones? He was Randall Tarly. Oh, sh- shit. Yeah, wow. right? And and I, I know I sent this gif up to you guys on the, on the thread we had going beforehand, but Bernard Hill, who was in both Titanic as the ship's captain, Absolutely. and he was King he Theoden. Was King, King yeah. Theoden, uh, yeah, Gondor was in this, and no, it's like of, you watch Rohan. How dare you? Oh, Rohan! Sorry, Rohan. How dare I? But uh, th- there is like itty bitty baby actors who, or just would be thrown across all these great pop franchises. Uh, from here on out. It was almost where I know I joked to Victor when we were discussing this and the making of this, like, can you tell me a list of which actors were not in this? Because <laughs> whether it was the top guys or the bottom guys, and actually I was thinking, I actually did compile a list. And it's like, so Ralph Richardson wasn't in this. Gilgood was not in this. Olivier was not in this. They needed Ian uh, McKellen, but I know I think he turned down a part. Right. Michael Gambon was not in this. Malcolm McDowell was not in this. And Warner, David Warner was doing The Omen this year. So he was shooting off with um, Gregory Peck. Otherwise, I'm sure that you probably would have seen a lot of those guys who you know from other famous, you know, this is around the time. They were, they were, you know, they were in and out, going to Los Angeles, going to London, shooting the rest of this stuff at Leaves Dinner Pinewood. But this was a collection of all these incredible actors. And again, with the bad guy from Robocop 3, what the hell was that actor's name? He played the, the freaking military assassin dude. He played, um, I think it was one of them. Um, Ah, uh, Cameron, he played like one of the uh, first two or three episodes. He was there too. So some of these actors who just like zip in and out. Of but it's pop incredible story. that a lot of these actors had to be seduced and persuaded to join the cast. I mean, now you look back on it and it's like, oh, I'm sure that they were, all the actors were stabbing each other in the back, just like the characters in order to get these opportunities. But John Hurt, who we haven't talked about yet, he had to be persuaded. And they basically threw this giant cast and crew party and they invited him. And as soon as he saw how everybody was interacting, he realized... This is the opportunity of a lifetime. Sign me up to play Caligula. Senators, gentlemen, our beloved Emperor Tiberius Claudius is dead. I've just left his room, having closed those tired old eyes with this hand. Before he died, he took from his finger this ring, his own seal, and placed it on my finger, and he said... I die in peace, little Gaius, knowing that you rule in my place. Those were his last words. I wept. I fell to my knees and wept. Gentlemen, I stand before you now as your emperor. Master! Long live Rome! Master! He's alive again! The Emperor's alive again. He's calling for his supper and he wants his ring back. Take it! Take it! I don't want to hear it! Wait a minute! Wait! Gentlemen! 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 I'm sure there's been some sort of mistake. This stupid slave saw the, the wind stirring the clothes on the Emperor's bed. That's all. No, he's asking for beef cutlets and a goblet of wine. Quiet, slave, or I'll make a beef cutlet out of you. He's out of his wits, can't you see? You'd better go and look for yourself. Exactly. Exactly. I suggest that you all remain here until the matter's sorted out. Come on. I want my supper. And and I want a 
Beef. I told you he was dead. Typical of him. He just wanted to see what we'd do if we thought he was dead. I shan't forget this, Macro. I really shan't. So, Victor, obviously, John Hurt, he's a legend. I mean, there's so many legends in this, but people will never forget him from things like Alien, as like the during the chest bursting scene, and so on and so forth. But what do you think of his interpretation of one of the strangest, most notorious figures in, in all of human history, the great Caligula, which I think is like a nickname, which means like little boot. <laughs> That's right, little boots, yeah. Um, the uh, I can't think of a more diametrically opposed set of characters than Cain and Alien and Caligula and I, Claudius. I mean, <laughs> uh, it is just uh, insane. I mean, Bill was just educating me about... Um, uh, Hertz previous performances um, that kind of makes more sense to why they looked at him for Caligula but I have no idea why Scott looked at him for Alien even though he's brilliant in it um, but uh, it's a way more understated <laughs> well I mean everybody, everybody's more understated than, than Caligula now I, I had the personal disadvantage of seeing Malcolm McDowell in Caligula in Caligula uh, first. <laughs> yes. So uh, that's sort of the, the way I judge the character. Like all, all the other performances of Caligula kind of form around that uh, for me, um, which is so over the top. But um, but no, I, I think that um, Hurt is surprising, uh, you know, at many turns and, um, and definitely over the top. And uh, Oh my God! Yeah, that that scene with uh, with him and Drusilla that was famously uh, uh, edited to uh, to Jack Pullman's horror, um, where uh, he he does away with his uh, his sister in a, a particularly bizarre way um, is uh, his performance. It, it just I, I think that there'll be no pain. There'll be no pain. I promise you. Don't you know, go in there. Don't go in there. <laughs> yeah, just don't go in there. The way he says that, you know everything that happened. I mean, I think that's why they were comfortable editing it. Um, yeah, sadly, the full scene has been lost. I mean, back in the day, the BBC would just throw things away, and they almost threw away all the seasons of Monty Python. I mean, it's just it's. And speaking of Monty Python, there are some scenes in this that almost reminded me of like Monty Python, like when Tiberius finally gets smothered by Caligula. And he's like, I want my supper. And he's got a doddering around. And then he's like, and John Reese Davies has to put a, a pillow over him real quick because Caligula has prematurely announced to uh, Tiberius's demise. But oh my God. And there's so many brilliant scenes when he's got this kind of quiet eerie way about him when he's describing how he's gone through this metamorphosis and Claudius is like, oh, well, what is like the nature of this metamorphosis? It's like, well, isn't it obvious? I mean, everything he says, you feel like he's always an inch away from killing everybody around him or playing a harmless gag on them. Like it, it, He could flip-flop between little gags or cutting your throat, 
on on just the the smallest whim. And I think when you think of like a tyrannical, petulant boy emperor, it's hard to think of a better example than Caligula. Yeah, I almost wonder if um, I, I think the first six episodes of the show are incredible. Some of the best TV ever made. The, the the subsequent seven, I guess it's episodes seven through six, seven through thirteen, I guess it is, are very more. They're a lot more elliptical. There are fewer, uh, you know, the arcs are almost subsequent from every two episodes. Every two episodes, they it's a little more discontinuous. And I know that uh, Caligi was really like this in history, but John Hurt, his his thing, he really turns the volume up to like twelve or thirteen. When the rest of the show was almost boiling out of seven or eight. And for that reason, it's like, I don't like the character of Caligula. I know you're not supposed to like him, but it's he pulls focus so much. Then I started thinking that, well, the reason why this is, is so you, it's a contrast to what Claudius needs to do to work around it. And again, Jamie, that scene you describe about, he he is going through a couple of days of it, look, probably epileptic seizures in real life or some other palsy he's having. And he comes out of it with this psychotic delusion that he's become a god. And the brilliance of that scene is that um, Derek Jacobi's version of Claudius immediately realizes he thinks so quickly and he tap dances so fast. He knows what to say to Let get out of it. Let me be the first to bow down and worship you. Me. He knows immediately how to play the role that he's going to have to play for the next few years. Like, like Kurt Vonnegut said, take a fuck at a rolling donut. And that is what dealing with Caligula was supposed to be, where the reason why he's zigging and zagging in all these weird, illogical, irrational ways was really because it was like a test for Claudius to make it through. And he passed those st- He gets thrown into a river, drags himself out, covered in seaweed and mud, and continues supplicating, somehow talks his way out of it just minutes away before getting executed. And it's just, it's a proof of his mettle along the way that he somehow knows how to deal with this guy. I mean, this is a guy who has a child beheaded because his godlike senses are so omniscient and omnipotent that he's able to hear the child coughing wherever he might be. And (laughs) suddenly John Reese Davis walks into the room just holding the kid's head. And, you know, Claudius every once in a while will just react in complete and total horror, especially when he sees that Caligula's murdered his sister and wife and, you know, carved a fetus right out of her womb because he's terrified that the fetus might grow to be a god who's even more powerful than he, much like how Zeus had to swallow the mother of Athena. And then, of course, Athena sprouted right from his skull. I mean, for them, all these Greek myths... They're real. Like they, Hercules was a real guy. Zeus was a real guy. And that's one thing I love about this is how we as the audience are watching this very grounded, sordid, depraved drama. But for the characters within, all the, these grand myths are part of the fabric of reality, which adds this almost kind of supernatural and mythic grandeur to the proceedings, which I find fascinating. And I know, obviously, uh, Victor, you and I, we've done episodes now about like the Odyssey and Romans. I know you probably share my interest in all these uh, these Greek mythology tropes. Yeah, I mean, um, just one, yeah, one historical note is uh, noting the difference, even though there are a lot of similarities, like we talked about in the Rome episode, between um, the gods that the Greeks worshipped and the gods that the Romans worshipped, um, the, uh, there are differences in the, way the, the, the ways the societies dealt with the worship of those gods. And uh, I understand that the Romans were a lot more turnkey when it came to the gods. Like the gods never got involved in um, in Roman, in ancient Roman belief in everyday life. They were basically just 
gift givers, that if you prayed to them hard and long enough, you got to get something for you or, or your family. And, um, you know, it was just a way to unite uh, a family or a people. And um, uh, the Greeks uh, saw it more as, uh, you know, you shall have no other gods but us. <laughs> well, it's hysterical. It's watching Caligula trying to do battle with Neptune repeatedly, and he comes back and he's, as proof of his great victories, dumps a couple of treasure chests of seashells on the floor. I mean, you want to talk about somebody who's, you know, the emperor ha quite literally has no clothes. It's just fascinating seeing him and when he's, you know, he's dismayed by it's raining outside and he's arguing with like a, a local river god and just all that stuff like for, for Caligula, <laughs> all, the, all this stuff is fucking real. And of course his wife, who's tripping balls and drinking some serum that he's discovered. She's kind of rolling with it. And I love a Claudius at one point says, Oh, and by the way, you're a goddess too. Like just, just, just as you know, I mean that whole bit, this actually was shown to us back in high school. I can't remember what we were reading or some ancient civilization class, but they were showing us little bits and pieces from the show. And they showed us the assassination of Caligula, which obviously John Hurt sells incredibly well and he apparently had some like just like big giant tube of blood under his gown that as he's like doubling over in pain he was able to squeeze it and make it immediately apparent but it still blows my mind that it showed this bloody and with so much nudity and so much depraved behavior i don't know how this thing ever actually got on tv irrespective of uh, of the era in which it was made probably because of the content because I mean, the, I, yeah, the content's so classy. Yeah. Content's so classy, but also I was, I was I sent you guys today. There was an article from the New York Times back from like 1976, and you know they were they were discussing the local nets in New York. It was WNET was the PBS um, handler who was going to masterpiece theater this, and that's a different opinion than the BBC guys. The BBC people had some. They jockeyed a little bit over whether or not. England could handle the amount of bare boobs and, and you know, there was nearly some pubic, I guess there was some pubic areas too. There was some pretty close to full nudity. I mean, Caligula's uh, orgy, you have guys making out, you've got like, yeah. you know, like African slaves in the mix. I mean, it is a full-blown orgy just on regular yeah. TV. It is. And I think they, the, the calculus they did in their heads was that, well, this was in the Robert Graves book. So if it was good enough for the book written in 1934, it's got to be good enough for TV in 1970. Certainly the swing in the 70s, if we're just smashing down barriers. And also, I think there's this, for as, as reserved as the English are, and I mean, let me comment on the English like I know what the fuck I'm talking about here. I think that especially compared to American TV, the English prided themselves a little bit more on having looser standards. We could handle the exposed breasts. We can handle the sexual. We can handle the word fuck and cunt on TV. And they have much longer than we have in America. So, you know, they, they were willing to take a gamble on it. And it paid off incredibly because the show was a huge success. But as I found out today doing this research, apparently even the, the PBS vendors still cut this thing. They, the editor said, oh, we just trimmed some frames out. We decreased the length of the nudity, the exposure of the bare breasts, the two men kissing, you know, using the 1976 morality. She says, we just trimmed because we understand you get the impression from seeing the men kissing, from seeing the breast, And then we just make it shorter so it's more tasteful all around. And, and it's funny because that person, I think her name was, uh, I don't know, Sullivan. I forget what her name was. But she said, it, it's not a sensorial cut. You know, and she goes, it's just for length. And I'm like, mm, that sounds That's like a pretty total sensorial bullshit. cut yeah, to it, me. Only total the only length they're concerned about is the scenes that just have happened. And also, the way this is shot, 
these are long takes. You ruin something if you start truncating bits and pieces. It's not yeah. like this is like a bunch of rapid fire editing where you, you'll, you'll blink and you'll miss it. Some of these takes last like 10 minutes. So you can't really go in there and start chopping it up without just totally destroying it. Yeah, I'm, I'm positive that the American viewer had never seen anything like this. Let's be fair. In I've never seen anything like this. It's 2020 and 44 <laughs> years old, and I'd read the book. And also, I mean, the scene where friggin' uh, his wife, who gets given oh, to him by uh, Caligula yeah. during his performance, for, for, yeah. for lack of a better word. Um, yeah. But when she has a contest where the wife of the emperor <laughs> brings in the most famous whore in all of Rome and they want to see who can fuck the most guys back to back before they get worn <laughs> out. I mean, that's just jaw-dropping. Permit me to introduce myself. My name is Minister. I am an actor. Most people have heard of me. My name is Scylla, and I'm a whore. Everybody's heard of me. <laughs> <laughs> Allow me to introduce you to the Lady Messalina, your challenger and the Emperor's wife. This is Scylla the Sicilian, and anybody's wife. <laughs> I am honored. You are most welcome. They said you were beautiful, but their praise did you small justice. You are most generous. And it was sporting of you to accept the challenge. Sporting? I see, there's no money in it. <laughs> You're here for the honor, woman, and to defend your reputation. Would you defend yours for nothing, Greek? <laughs> Lady, I'm a professional. I work for money. The honor I gladly leave to you. <laughs> She expects to be paid, and in this company. <laughs> the difference between you and me, actor, is you're a snob and I'm not. And the difference between this great lady and myself is that my work is her hobby. My hobby happens to be gardening, for which I don't expect to be paid. <laughs> you shall have your money. Shall we say five? Three gold pieces ahead? A head seems an odd way to describe it. <laughs> Win or lose, of course. That seems satisfactory. Satisfactory? You've never earned so much in a whole year. This Greek will drive me to distraction. Nothing I say pleases him. Let us begin. Which side of the bed do you prefer? Left or right? Lady, give me a support for my back. And let the games begin, as they say. <laughs> let the games begin. It is, but, but it's never it's never gratuitous because yeah. that that is the fall of that uh, of that character, uh, Messalina, right? It, yeah. I mean, you know, her promiscuity is something that would have been frowned on by <laughs> by a Roman husband, especially one as public as an emperor. Yeah, right. It, it, what Victor's saying, it's not that she's being shamed for having sex. It has to do with the mores of what's tolerated in the culture. This is not slut shaming anybody because everybody's guilty of the same things. In that respect, I do think that the morality of the show, 
was also firmly in place with modern sensibility. They're not killing people for having sex with other people. It's the fact that it was done profligately. It was done to shame. It, it was done with shame. The fact that the lower classes would be bled these stories piece by piece through innuendo and gossip, and that was the real unforgivable uh, shame of what they were doing. Yeah, I mean Augustus. His biggest concern is people gossiping about his daughter, Julia. I mean, he banishes his daughter to an island to starve to death, basically, because of the shame that's brought on their families. And Augustus, while all this crazy shit's going on around him, he definitely liked the idea of everybody serving Rome, everybody having large families. He had a certain moral code. And obviously, once he gets poisoned by his wife, some of those uh, morals start to disintegrate all around them. Well, who have we not gotten to yet? Well, I guess let's talk about Brian Blessed. We haven't really given him his due yet. I obviously first saw him in friggin' Flash Gordon as a little kid. I've been a Same. lifelong fan. Nobody expresses himself verbally on this planet quite like Brian Blessed. He's just got this incredible theatricality that I've always found delightful. So, Mr. Rodriguez, what are your thoughts on Augustus Caesar himself? You? Lady Sextus Balbus? Is it true? Have you slept with my daughter? Caesar, I answer the question. Yes, Caesar. And you? Marcus Volusius Saturnus? Have you slept with my daughter? Caesar. Just answer the question. Yes, Caesar. And you? Have you? And you? Publius Nobanus Flaccus? Once, Caesar. Ah, only once. That's all. Not slept, Caesar. Not slept? You mean it happened standing up, perhaps? Or in the street, or on a bench? Not slept. Must have been hard for you. Terrible. It's a wonderful thing you've done coming to me like this. I'm proud of you. She's gone, don't ever mention her name. But let her, let her be all alone. 
all alone until she dies. She's not fit for human company. Well, I, I think there's there's only one scene in in I in the I Claudius uh, miniseries that uh, is more memorable than uh, Brian Blessed's uh, speech to the uh, <laughs> the suitors of his daughter. Um, suitors, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is a genius. But um, but when when he dies, it's just this sustained shot of like a five minute uh, take, yeah. That's awesome. The, that was the, awesome. The light, Fucking yeah, awesome. leaving. And it's really, and it's just, uh, they just show his face, right? Like they show his face and the life leaving his face. I, I honestly have never seen anything like it uh, in a film or a television. Uh, and it's just, the scene is just heartbreaking because it's just Livia going on and on about these details. That's the only audio. And, you know, it, it it's it's sort of that, um, brilliance of the, the the writers and the filmmakers knowing that that the audience is going to be horrified by this going don't you know he's dying you know like it's just uh, it's, it's such great filmmaking yeah, but, uh, yeah and she's been trying to kill him for a little while and she's finally pulled it off but he gets sick and then he nurses himself back to health by accepting no food that's been touched by human hands but then finally she outwits him by covering every single fig on the entire tree that in his own private garden. And she finally takes him down. And I know that initially Sean Phillips was a little annoyed that this marvelous, like but just pages upon pages of dialogue that they weren't actually going to shoot her saying it, but she was a very generous actor. And that's the key is trying to juggle all these egos. I mean, all these actors are just at the height of their powers. They're all just hitting home runs one line after another, trying to make sure they're all, getting their moments to contribute and who's hogging the center stage and who has to kind of give. But it's a brilliant scene where he's getting the moment where you see Rome, quite literally the entire empire dying in his eyes. And she just keeps talking and talking and talking. And I think they, they played the scene together beautifully. And I love watching their, the evolution of their relationship and how toward the end, when he starts getting a little bit more forgetful and senile and the way she's always kind of nagging at him, whether you're the emperor of the greatest empire that the world has ever seen or you're just a common like husband and wife like in 1970s america everybody can relate to the way that they interact with each other throughout the course of like i guess those first four episodes uh, yeah, yeah, they, yeah i was gonna say the 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 with the way this show was shot on video with those floating sliding cameras on a sound stage uh very presentational like a film play it did not afford very many cinematic moments they they were filling the stage with a lot of light, so they could do depth of field tricks by uh, uh, closing the iris and uh, you know something that, in sharp contrast with a blurry background. But that scene, like Victor said, where you're focusing on Brian Blessed doing his performance of dying while Sharon Phillips is off to the side, that's a very cinematic thing. There aren't very many moments like that, which is why they hit when they do yeah. manage to stumble on something that is very cinematic. Yeah, I mean, that's, yeah, that's worthy of Bergman right there, the, the, just doing an entire scene in a close-up like that. No cuts, and you, you, but you can only pull it off if you've got the best damn actors known to human civilization because you, to speak for five minutes without stuttering or stammering just like an idiot, I mean, 
it, you just you need actors who are masters of their craft to deliver that. And so this is a rare moment where the best possible material is in the hands of the best possible actors, and that's why you get screen gold. Yep. And and yeah, I just just want to say one more thing about Blessed. I mean, uh, in that uh, that documentary, that 2002 documentary, he summons the exact same bearing and tone <laughs> of the character. You know, so many years later, yeah, it's, it's like he just, pushes a button and boom, Augustus is there. And he's as ready. fast as boiled asparagus. Yeah, he's ready to go. <laughs> it's stunning. Yeah, I mean, I think. People sometimes sleep on the fact that uh, just just what an actor is called upon to do, and we have all these dumbasses these days, like Shia LaFuckface, just kind of mumbling <laughs> mumbling their way through these mumblecore character-driven dramas. It's like that's not acting. That's just some douchebag who gets to like fuck supermodels in his spare time. Like this is acting. Brian Blessed, where he can decades later push a button and boom augustus explodes forth for me that is what what the, what the craft and the, like the, the art of acting is all about yeah, jamie just just remember jamie there's literally 10 of these people on earth at any one given time most of the people have to do the method like franco james franco where they got to sleep on benches they get their character hold accents through production most people are not brian blessed who can play a hawk man believably yeah I mean, God damn, he's so fucking good in Flash Gordon, and he's good in Blackadder. He's good at everything, but it's bizarre watching him as a young man, especially when he has that incredible scene where he has his reunion with uh, Agrippa, who has been offended by the, I guess, the appearance of the preference, preferential treatment of Marcellus, which has created this incredible schism between Marcus Agrippa and his faction and uh, Marcellus. And when Marcellus gets poisoned <laughs> by Olivia, the first of many, you have Augustus going to visit Agrippa on his island and their reunion and the way they're, they're almost going into hysterics, talking about their love and affection for each other. And there's this great moment where Agrippa almost overplays his hand because Agrippa comes from lower stock. He's you know, more of a commoner, but he wants to marry into Augustus's family. And Brian Blessed has this moment where he kind of looks at him sideways and it's like, is he about to fucking kill him or what's going to happen? And then suddenly the world's biggest smile starts to spread over Brian Blessed's face. It's like, oh, of course, blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's just wonderful, beautiful, delightful stuff to watch unfold in real time. Yeah. Well, who have we not given a proper shout out to? I mean, I guess George Baker, I was unfamiliar before this, but he crushed it. I mean, everybody's good in this, but of the major personas, have we given everybody their due? I just want to make sure that everybody who has their, their, their moments on screen in this, who have we not given a proper shout out to yet? I, I do think George Baker, uh, in particular, because he's not an actor any of us has seen before, and we've watched between the three of us, I would say 10,000 millennium of, of, of entertainment, especially a lot of stuff out of England. I'm assuming that for whatever reason, George, George Baker did not cross over into Hollywood. He didn't want to do those things like a lot of the Brits did not want to move to Los Angeles or play the Hollywood game. He was happy to go make Poldark or or Lovejoy or whatever series were coming out of England on the most part. Commuting somewhere in London or Surrey over to Le Leavesden or Pinewood Studios and just do the work and go home. And he didn't want to play the game. 
So, but for such an important part, that's the thing. It's like this guy spans, uh, you know, he spans over six or seven episodes of this show, and I have never seen him anywhere before or since. But obviously, he's, he's got a, a long. He's a captain to, in Spy Who Loved Me. Right, but he's mm. got a long resume. You go to IMDb. He's done a shitload of work. He's been. He was a working actor, and and also the other thing that he suffers from too, I guess, is the fact that he died before most of these other people. So mm. we didn't get a chance to see him as an old man. I think he died in the mid-20-teens or something like that. So he's been gone for a little while now. And I think a lot of these guys would get circulated, sucked up into the machine of Netflix and the machine of prestige filmmaking. There's no reason that he wouldn't have been in Tenet, for instance, if he was still alive, playing some elder statesman. There's a there's a role for all these old Englishmen that people remember. And I think George Baker did such an incredible job, was so memorable, but he's like the one missing link of this project. Uh, that I personally can't find spread through the rest of popular culture. He didn't show up in Star Trek. He didn't show up in Dune. He didn't show up in Lord of the Rings. It wasn't Game of Thrones. Star Wars, anything that you figure these people sort of breathe life into. Yeah, I guess Brian Blessed, he gets Flash Gordon. Sean Phillips, she gets Dune. Brian Patrick Blessed, was, gets... He, was, he was the fucking frog guy in Phantom Menace. I mean, he shows up in Star Wars too. Yeah, but mm-hmm. I guess all these other actors, they do, and John Hurt gets Alien. They, they all get associated with these much larger franchises which helps yeah. them gain that crossover appeal but man I, I i love george baker he just he was remarkable in this and and yeah. he too he nailed the arc and the makeup where by the end his head's flaking and it's like he's bleeding from the freaking old man skin cancer scalp and i mean in the novel they suggest a lot more strange perverse things that he's been yeah. doing on the side and he takes all these aphrodisiacs all the time to try to perform so i always assume that he's got like syphilis or the clap or whatever that all these yeah. sores are basically just stds run amok <laughs> and as in the actor he was like jogging six miles a day and biking to and from the set to get in shape for the role. Yeah. So he's very lean and strong early on when we see him like working out with the medicine balls and you know scraping dirt off his brother's back and all that kind of stuff and wrestling. It's almost like a gay porn scene. You're like, are these guys gonna fuck or what's going what's going on here? <laughs> but to see his decomposition over the course of the episodes till the very end. I know a lot of people like to complain about how the makeup looks bad. The makeup works for me, especially Olivia, the way she looks, but I know that with Derek Jacoby his basically his skin started coming off and if it, it just he was like it was it was incredibly painful so they finally got to the point where he would submerge himself or in a bathtub with a tube for air and then slowly the makeup would come off over the course of uh over a couple of hours but it, apparently it was unendurable what all these actors had to go through to play these aging performer these aging characters I think I think the makeup was was stage makeup. You know, it really was sort of like BBC stage makeup for TV, which is why the prosthetics were state of the art. They weren't quite silicone yet, but it was like some sort of gel or plastic. Uh, and you know, it would need another generation or so to get it right. And again, if it was inside of a proscenium arch, it would look completely different because it would play to the back row. But when you have a camera, a video camera that's right up in your fucking grill, the stuff you start to see the seams and the goo and the and the the, the plasticine makeup troweled on people's faces. But well, but absolutely necessary because uh, the the makeup of the characters is your instant cue at the start of every episode to how yeah. many years have gone by. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, good point. Good point. Yeah, yeah, when you see Livia and like being carried through town and she bumps into Tiberius and she starts talking shit about something, but it's like, oh my God, she looks a thousand. Like, what, what's going on here? <laughs> but Victor, let's start talking a little bit about cultural legacy and influence because I think whether you're talking Rome or Game of Thrones or any show where you've got a lot of powerful, corrupt people competing for 
whatever throne might be available at that time. I think that's where you see the influence of I Claudius all over it. But I guess if you as a, as a producer today were going to do I Claudius, do you go the Rome route where you bring in all the spectacle and the armies and the gladiatorial combat? Or do you basically keep it as is where it's just great actors, great dialogue in these small contained rooms having conversations? Because I guess if I had 500 million to spare, I would love to see like a hybrid of the two where you basically take the scripts by Pullman and then combine it with the spectacle of Rome and give us the best of both possible worlds. But I'm, I'm rambling this point. Uh, what, what do you think just in, in terms of like just the overall influence and legacy of I Claudius in 2020, where do we stand? Cause here we are, we're still talking about it. Well, I, I think um, like you guys said at the beginning of this episode, I mean, it still totally stands on its own. It's that good. Uh, but um, yeah, same. I mean, I would, I would like to see. I would have liked to see a, a big budget version with everything that's in the current series, plus um, you know the actual gladiatorial fights and and um, you know larger sets and and uh, you know uh, things things that just make it look a little more polished to uh, American audiences that uh, you know are used to multi-million dollar productions. Um, but uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a fantastic story. I mean, uh, like we were talking about earlier, it is about the rulers of the world at a time that the world had never known and never did know after that. Like this, these, this is the greatest extent of one civilization's power in the world we knew. So of course, uh, these Roman emperors are sort of an archetype for incredibly powerful statesmen, um, you know, for science fiction, fantasy, uh, you know, and any bit of history that, that came before it. Um, so it's, yeah, I, 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 but I, yeah, I would have loved to have seen, I mean, much to, much to the, uh, the horror of uh, the PBS censors when they brought it over to the US, <laughs> I would have loved to have seen more violence and more nudity. Um, because that uh, is totally excusable for the time. So why not, you know, uh, why block something that, uh, you know, that is going to, you know, put asses in the seats, so to speak? Yeah, pure, raw entertainment. That's one thing that's remarkable about this is that if you're a, like a diehard historian, you're going to be riveted. But if you just want to be entertained, this is mass market entertainment. This is entertainment for, for everybody. And I love how in the, these documentaries, hearing like Sean Phillips, how she'd be in Israel in a cab driver, like, oh my God, you're an I Claudius. I mean, this is a thing that, that translated and carried over. Ordinarily, you think of like a prestige drama like this, that it keeps a lot of people at arm's length because the text and the subject matter, they're just too elusive and they're too complex. But even though it is an incredibly complex story, everybody can relate to somebody being terrified of their grandmother who's poisoning everybody. Like it doesn't take, it doesn't matter what your background is in terms of education, class, whatever. It's an instantly relatable story to anybody on the, on the surface of the globe. And I think that's what makes it endure so well. And it's, I'm just thrilled that I finally discovered this. Like I said before, I refused to watch it for so long just out of loyalty to Joseph von Sternberg, which is a totally absurd thing. And now I'm thinking, well, shit. Should I go back and watch like uh, the Alec Guinness friggin' Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy miniseries? Like, what what mm. else have I been neglecting? But Mr. Scurry, if you had to pit 
Livia against the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohiam. Who's going to win in that head-to-head collision? Now that, uh, now that I know you're a fan of, of both characters per, per, so brilliantly portrayed by Sean Phillips. Yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think that, um, again, my introduction to uh, Sean Phillips is as Reverend uh, Gaius Helen Mohiam. So I'm 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 partial to David Lynch's Dune in 1984, and I think I it's really hard to see. I mean, I'm reading. I've been. I you know I read Dune. Obviously, I've read all the Dune novels that she's in. I have been reading. Um, there is right now currently there's a a Marvel Comics produced Dune prequel series written by Brian Herbert and Kevin Anderson, which is covering the first few years before the Dune book starts, and so you get to see. Uh, the the Duke and the Baron as younger men sort of jockeying up before they know each other. So there's a conception of the Reverend Mother there, and there's a conception of Reverend Mother. There's also a, I think it was a Boom Studios Dune Book One graphic novel, a hardbound one that John Arminio, a uh, friend, friend of the show, was very kind to send me for Christmas. And there's another mm-hmm. conception of, of Gaius Helen Mohiam in there too, but it is Sharn Phillips as far as I'm concerned. All the strong characters, all these mythological characters, and again, the fusion of religion and the fusion of, of uh, heredity and genetic science that goes into David Lynch's conception, I mean, or Frank Herbert's conception, David Lynch's execution of Gaius Helen Mohiam. It's it's hard to see as much as I do love her, her, uh, her design of Livia. It's incredible and you span time, but I really love that character, man. She's the head of the genetic, you know, the breeding program. Uh, and, and that's, we broke the ice in 84. So I think I have to say, just by a hair, uh, the Bene Gesserit Reverend Mother comes <laughs> comes out ahead in this one. Yeah, I mean, it was funny is how she's got the Gom Jabbar, which kills people in Dune, and here she uses figs and poison, and she, yeah. she's always killing people. And the, I think one of the funniest scenes by far is when Livia is sitting down with another a fellow poisoner, and they're talking about techniques, and the girl's complaining about like stomach pain, and she looks in horror at Livia and looks, ah. Oh! It's just wind, and she like throws some of like the food into her mouth, <laughs> just to show. But like, oh my god, like yeah, like anytime she invites you over for a drink or for a snack, or whatever, you better watch your ass. And I, I just love how when Claudius finally gets together with her to show that um, he's not afraid or that he's gonna have a uh, you know show her some respect. He chugs a couple of goblets of wine then and there, and she appreciates his his gesture of trust. And then finally, that wine it does make them bold, and they have a great frank conversation. In, yes, that's true. But in in the freaking glossary of Dune, the novel uh, that Herbert came out with, there's actually, you know, for him too, he had these, you know, it's an imperium in Dune, just the same. And there's all these royal houses and there's jockeying and there's extremely, you know, larcenous female characters who are homicidal. Frank Herbert created two different words for poisoning for the for Dune that are in the, the you know the glossary of the book itself. There's poison imbibed through fluid or drink. It's called shawmurky. No, shawmusky. And food through poisoning through food is shall murky, and those are both like it is. You're inviting uh, Sharn Phillips into this thing. If you're going to bring so much Roman stuff, so much of Livia into this, I think that it's perfect casting, and I'm so glad they saw through to doing that. Yeah, Victor, it's like when we talked about our Rome. It's incredible to me just how much of our modern day sci-fi and fantasy is indebted to all these stories. We were talking about how. The idea of Star Wars, like the transition from Republic to Empire, is so much at the core of what the Emperor and Darth Vader and like the whole drama is all about. And I think a lot of people out there just live in total blissful ignorance of just how indebted we are to this chapter, like the whole like fulcrum or like pivot point of human history. This whole narrative and this whole 
this whole saga casts a very long shadow. And I think that the smart writers out there, whether you're talking George R. R. Martin or whomever, are going to continue to borrow from and be inspired by this forever. Absolutely. And uh, yeah, I mean, further to the writers that are out there, and if you're really turned on by this kind of intrigue and, and this period in history, uh, I just started reading this series um, by uh, an American author named John Maddox Roberts um, called the SPQR, and there are a lot of them. There's like 12. Senatus Populusque Ud Quad Romam, right? Correcto. Holy shit. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, in the name of the Senate and the people of Rome. Uh, and it, it basically covers the period right before Caesar's, no, right before Caesar embarks on the, the Gallic campaign. Gotcha. Um, and goes forward. And it goes into things, other things that are not part of the I Claudius show that the Romans contributed to our society, like the legal system and, uh, you know, the way their economics worked and, and uh, their engineering and all that kind of stuff. Like each book sort of uh, floats around a particular Roman concept. And um, they're, they're absolutely great. When you're reading this stuff, and it's, it's a 2,000-year-old story, but the way they're talking about the way they handle like their estates and taxes, and it all feels astonishingly modern. And granted, obviously, Robert Graves is giving it probably more of a modern flavor just being a, a writer who's living 1900 years later. But I, I was just in awe of just how, apart from technology, it, it feels like it could have happened yesterday. And that's what I guess part of the genius of his approach. But yeah, Roman society and their contributions to Western civilization are, are tough to deny. But as we start bringing everything in for a safe landing, what are some future subjects along these lines that might be fun to tackle? Now, I read Shogun back in the day, but I've never seen the show, and I feel like something like that could be fun. But what are the, the great big kind of undiscovered countries of great text combined with great shows that perhaps I've been neglecting or sleeping on or overlooking, in, at least in your, in your mind? Well, man, I, I mean, I would. I had a great time today, and I would love to pitch. Um, you know, it, this is a little off subject on the miniseries front, but um, I would love to. I, I got two pitches for you. One, one is uh, Netherlands horror. Like, I think oh, there are some great. I didn't even know yeah, there was Billy, Netherlands horror. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Bill, you mentioned the other day um, the lift, uh, and oh yeah, there's masks. Yeah, legend. Yeah, uh, Amsterdamed, uh, and I'm sure we can find something else that uh, these are really uh, cornerstone movies in sort of the history of, of horror, which I'm really into, as, as your listeners know. Um, and uh, the, the other thing is um, there is another Roman miniseries called The Last Days of Pompeii that was made in 1984. Oh, yeah, TV. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, uh, with Robards or who am I thinking of? Tony Curtis? There's a lot of guys in that one. Possibly, yeah. Ned Beatty's yeah. in it. Um, when you uh, think it, ancient Rome, you think Ned Beatty. <laughs> isn't, there, it is isn't there another well show cast. from the early 2000s that has Christopher Walken in it, where they actually have him dressed as a senator in robes with his Christopher Walken accent, trying to do uh, you know the, all the plotting and scheming and maneuvering? But anyways, obviously people are, are never going to leave the subject matter alone. I love it. I love it already. Um, I, I mean, yeah, James, you you can <laughs> you'll you'll decide whether or not the fate is to to, to focus on this, or maybe this is just like further reading. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> last days of Pompeii, it's very soap opera like. It's very um, you know daytime uh, soap and very safe uh, in terms of content. 
but uh, it was very popular at the time, and um, it's based on another popular work about the the fall of Pompeii. Yeah, I was gonna say it. It was like NBC showed V the year before that, I think, or the same year. And the Last Days of Pompeii, I think, was ABC's counter in terms of the nighttime primetime. A buzzy miniseries, even to the point where I remember, you know, Ernie Anderson, the guy who did all the uh, the ad reads, he was the voice of ABC back in the day. I remember him saying, "The last days of Pompeii." <laughs> gotcha. Excellent. Well, as we draw this to a close, uh, Scurry, I'll let you go first. Where can people find you online? Talk about your podcast, your YouTube channel, all the good stuff. It is time to plug and promote. I, I just I just want to do two little sides. Before I get to that, there were two things I wrote in my notes here that I thought were worth mentioning. First of all was that uh, there was a great side-by-side here. At the end, Claudius is about to receive a, a, a mouthful on a fork of mushrooms that he knows very well are poisoned from his wife, uh, who he knows is about to poison. And he, he relents, he accepts. It's almost like he sees his fate. And I thought that was an incredible symmetry with Reynolds Woodcock, uh, the character that um, uh, uh, Daniel Day Lewis, yeah. yeah, played in Phantom Thread, who he does the exact same thing, and so I really wonder how much this had invaded P.T. Anderson's thought because that moment is exactly the same. The difference is one would assume Reynolds Woodcock lives, but uh, Claudius does in fact die because of this. And the other thing, I again, I'm going to bring Dune one more time, James, before I start plugging. Bring it up as much as you like. Claudius says at the end, he's telling his son, he goes, I am not going to make you emperor. I'm not going to designate you heir. I'm going to allow him to put Nero into the job. And his son says, why would you do that? He says, because I have driven this country hard as I could, embracing the role of emperor. And he says, what I'm going to do is finish the masterstroke of letting Nero crush the thing. They're going to get so sick of an emperor after Nero that they will they will go back to a republic. And that is exactly, exactly the golden path of Leto Atreides, Paul Atreides. He sees that. The reason why Paul Atreides becomes the god emperor in God Emperor of Doom is because he says 4,000 years of tyrannical rule will put all of humanity off charismatic leadership for the end of time. And I, I want I know that he Frank Herbert must have read Claudius and Claudius the God because that is a, a very distinctly Roman turn to insert. And I it, it's my favorite part of the entire Dune saga is is Leto revealing the golden path, saying that that's it. I'm going to destroy the human race. All their hope will be riven and they will kill me and they will never go back to a, a leader again. They will go back to republic form. Uh, anyway, I'm on Twitter at William Scurry. My video content is youtube.com slash amcaesar. And uh, I do a podcast myself on the weekly basis uh, about pop culture with my friend Noah Tarno. It's called I Don't Get It. Uh, and so if you follow you t- uh, Twitter at William Scurry, you will see all my great output there. Beautiful. Mr. Rodriguez. And yes, I am uh, at Dime Store Caesar on Twitter. And. Um, <laughs> If you uh, if you want to talk about Roman stuff or uh, history or other miniseries, please uh, drop me a line. And um, yeah, I uh, I guess uh, my Twitter feed is probably the best best place to check out all my other links, uh, movie reviews, etc. And um, yeah, uh, can't. What wait about what to, about the uh, sound of fear? Uh, yeah, I've got uh, there's there's uh, both a paperback version and a digital version available now through Amazon. That's uh, that's on my Twitter feed. And um, there's a Inside the Sound of Fear, which is the absolutely free podcast that um, myself and my brilliant 
producer, uh, Josh, are are creating, where I do a, a single a single story read uh, in in every episode, and then uh, Josh uh, sort of takes me through a, a short interview about inspirational sources for that for that story. Um, so yeah, highly recommend that. The uh, I think the first six episodes are out, and the 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 final six should be coming out over the next month or two. Uh, so yeah, please uh, please tune in. Beautiful. Well, it's a pleasure to unite the two Caesars on the podcast for the first time. I'm always interested in a getting new people onto the show, but also creating unusual uh, kind of partnerships and uh, combinations and so on and so forth. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a thrill to see the two Caesars go head to head over such a remarkable topic. Well, this isn't a triumvirate; it's a biumvirate. The rule of two Caesars. So yes, absolutely. Yeah. Mark <laughs> Mark Antony and uh, Augustus go, going at it. So on and so forth. But one of these days, uh, Victor, you're going to need to invite me to participate in one of these online RPG sessions. I can, I can tell it's been six years since I've played any tabletop RPGs, and I can tell that it's a part of my soul that's been neglected, and I'm feeling this yearning to, uh, to roll some dice and, and, and kill some things. And, well, you know, I, I thought about you, and I pitched, I heavily pitched D&D 5th Edition for our next game, but they voted it down, so I don't know I'll what play we're some 5th Edition with you anytime, because I have never played, I never played 3, 3.5, 4, but I know 5, very popular right now. Who's the actor who plays, um, it was it Joe Manganiello, who played Deathstroke? Yeah. I've been watching a ton of YouTube videos with him, talking about his experience, he took like a 25-year break and got back into it, and now he's got this incredible dungeon where, like, people from Game of Thrones and different shows, and, like, he has, like, a, like an A-list celebrity regular D&D game, and I'm like, God damn, that looks like fucking fun. So, uh, yeah, I'm going to have to buy some books and uh, get up to speed on D&D and see what's going yeah. on these days. I, I played a couple of mini mini campaigns, and it's uh, it's pretty cool. It's uh, pretty pretty well designed. Yeah, I keep hoping that someone's going to say, look, we're producing, a like, a weekly YouTube show where we're going to play these games. You don't have to do any of the work to show up and just be a player, but yes, then I can just devote three hours to it as opposed to like 300 to all the plotting. But anyway, but to be continued on a, at, a, at, a, <laughs> on a, at a later date. Well, we hope y'all have enjoyed this episode. Definitely hunt down the book. Definitely hunt down the show. You'll just be blown away, and it gets my highest possible recommendation that I can put into words. But please remember to leave a rating and review for the show. Hunt me down on Twitter at Colbrax and hunt down my YouTube channel, Geeking with James Hancock. But we can't thank you enough for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. But more importantly, as always, onwards and upwards. Ain't like it used to be, but uh, it'll do. You know how to whistle, don't you, Steve? You just put your lips together and blow. <laughs>